Hello and welcome to the Music History Project. Today we have a very special episode of the podcast. We are going to be hearing from NAM staff about their favorite NAM show memories. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shedler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We're really excited for this episode. Um, it's been a long time coming. We've been gathering NAM staff uh, show stories, and we're excited to share them with you. Um, so basically, the way this podcast is going to work is we're going to have the staff sit down with us. They'll say their name, what they do here at NAM, how long they've been here, and then share their favorite memories with you guys. So sit back, relax, and enjoy some NAM staff show memories. My name is Zach Phillips. I'm NAM's Director of Professional Development. I've been at NAM for almost seven years. Uh, my first NAM show, though, was in year 2000, January 2000, the last show in Los Angeles, uh, when I was an editor at Music, Inc. and Upbeat Daily Magazines. And my favorite NAM memories truly do come back to the relationships and the people um, who I've formed lifelong friendships within the music products industry, like so many people in the industry and people at this table, I'm sure. Hmm. Um, but my most memorable NAM memory has to do with when we had Mr. Graham Nash at Breakfast of Champions. <laughs> For those who haven't been to it, Breakfast of Champions is the opening NAMU education, uh, NAMU breakfast session at the show each year. It's hosted by our president and CEO, Joe Lamond. And we decided that year to bring Graham Nash out to give him an award and to have him talk about um, the role of music in um, in society and also how inspiring um, what the, the role that our industry's played in inspiring um, musicians like himself. And so he came out, he did this wonderful interview with Joe as a surprise at the end of the session. And afterwards I went back to the green room and Graham was just sitting back there, you know, eating uh, breakfast. And I walked up to him and I thanked him for doing the session. I explained to him, how meaningful it was to all of us that he he was there at the show and and what a big deal it was to our members. And I explained also that, you know, at that moment, my wife was sitting at home seething and frustrated <laughs> because I got to produce a session with Mr. Graham Nash, the legendary singer-songwriter and member of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. <laughs> to which he said, and there is some, some uh, salty language in this story, to which he said, well, give me your phone, mate. My heart immediately starts hammering. I'm thinking, no, 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 Mr. Nash. We don't need to do that. To which he responded, give me your bleeping phone, mate. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to turn that down. And he's, of course, you know, he's got this little grin on the side of his face. He goes, call your bleeping wife and give me your bleeping phone. So I call my wife. It's about 10 in the morning. She didn't have a client that morning. She's at home uh, scrambling herself some eggs. When I hand the phone to Graham Nash, who says, Gloria, it's Graham. And he's standing 
probably about 15, 20 feet away from me. And from my little iPhone 6, I can hear in the background my wife going, no bleeping way, 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 to which he says, yes, bleeping way, sweetheart, it's Graham. With those shining, those wonderful, perfect pearly white teeth, big grin. At this point, the conversation became a blur. Understand that this is the most, the biggest event we host all year, and this is happening at the end as sort of a finale to it. The whole thing kind of becomes a blur. <clears throat> but eventually he hands the phone back to me and uh, and apparently, according to my wife, my first response was, I now have Graham Nash's DNA on my iPhone 6. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty cool. And um, she claims that he even said, yeah, your husband's a nice guy. So that feels kind of cool to think that Graham Nash actually <laughs> had, that, had that thought. But that particular year, I'd sort of blown her anniversary and her birthday. Just, you know, I didn't have any good ideas for gifts, so I kind of made up for it with that. So, you know, definitely uh, my, my, my friends in the industry, the people that I get to see every year, those are my best memories, getting to connect with them every year. But that's, that's my most memorable NAM show memory, the time Very Graham good. Nash called my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I love that, that story. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> My name is Andre Brousseau. I'm the membership support specialist here at NAM. I have been with NAM on and off for about six years. Uh, my first NAM show was the 2012 NAM show in Anaheim, California. And among my favorite memories, uh, let's see. There was one time, um, it was at the 2013 NAM show. I was actually an intern for NAM at the time. And I uh, was with the PR department on this um, specific day. And I'm just kind of, you know, hanging out, working on some paperwork, helping out where I can. And uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot happens to walk <laughs> into the room. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I was instantly recognized him. And I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. And he looked at me and we locked eyes and he was like, what's up? And then he just went on about his day. But that was the coolest what's up oh I've ever had in my life. So. That's awesome. Oh Did you shout out my posses on Broadway? Uh, no. <laughs> I would have. I didn't even, like, my brain was just, I'm normally not very starstruck, but my brain was just kind of like, oh, I don't know what to say right oh, now. That this is, is way so too cool. <laughs> so, um, Jealous. Yeah. yeah. I, another one of my uh, favorite memories was actually uh, the 2018 NAMM show. During the 2018 NAMM show, I think it was the Friday um, we had a U2 cover band. Um, they, <laughs> they opened up the show and everybody was so excited about it. Um, you know, of course I knew going in that it was a cover band, but we had people coming up to the member center and saying, oh my gosh, I just saw Bono out there. Like they, U2 just opened up the NAMM show. And so um, didn't have the heart to tell too many people that it was just a cover band, but just seeing the excitement in all of the you know folks who were coming through talking about it was really cool because it for a second made me feel like it was actually you two out there as well. Um, it must have been a really great cover band if so many people thought they it were. was them. I yeah. mean, the lead singer looks just like Bono. Mm -hmm. I think they're, it's like the U2 cover band of Hollywood or something. I don't know. Weren't they on a rooftop? I mean, didn't that help the mystique of it all? They, they <laughs> were. So not only it was kind of like, you know, the the bluff from a long distance, you know, they were up on, you know, one of the terraces at the Anaheim Convention Center. And so, you know, you could just see him from like 10 feet away. You had to kind of look up. And so <laughs> that definitely added to the mystique. They were, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, that's actually them. So. Wow. Good memories. Awesome. Yeah, those are yeah. awesome. Very cool. I'm Jessica Duarte, and I'm the Manager of Professional Development at NAM. 
I've been working for NAMM for five years, and my first NAMM show was probably 2006 because I worked in music retail uh, for 12 years before coming to work for NAMM. So I've been to lots of NAMM shows, and as, as a lot of other people that have worked here that may have worked in manufacturing or retail and gone to the show, it's like the tale of two sides. So you get to see the show as a, as a consumer, as a retailer, and then working here now seeing it on the other side and kind of being responsible for the actual function of the show is is a very different view. Um, but I have a couple good stories, I think. Uh, one happened uh, the year that it was pouring, I think it was 2017. And of course, you know, we're running around a lot and I was running into the Hilton and I slightly slipped and sprained my ankle. And then two hours later, it was like pretty swollen and I'm like, mm, I have to give up today. But I start getting these text messages um, from Tech Tracks, which was in the convention center at the time on level two. And so I kept getting these text messages like, we're out of coffee. We need coffee. We need coffee in the back area. And I'm like, coffee, really? But you'd be surprised. Coffee is really important to people. So I'm like, all right, well, apparently no one else can solve this coffee problem. So I, and they said it was for a session. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm texting back. Do you need it for stage or do you just need it backstage? And no one answers. So I'm hobbling like into the ACC, up the escalator to level two. And of course there's coffee left in the green room area. And I'm like, all right, fine. So I fill a to-go cup and a glass coffee mug in case it's going on stage and I'm like hobbling to the backstage area trying not to spill this coffee and like one of the NAM photographers runs by me and he's just like laughing and going like, don't understand what's happening but you look like you're on a mission so I finally get to the backstage area and I'm looking left and right can't really find a group go to the right because I hear like voices and I run into like what I think is a security guard because he's wearing all black and of course I spill a little bit of the coffee and I'm like oh great and then I turn again and there's Joe Perry from Aerosmith. Oh. And I'm like, oh, well, this makes sense. <laughs> Joe Perry needs coffee. His session's coming up because a lot of times you lose track of time. But yeah, so I didn't exactly get to meet him, but I humbly passed over the two cups of coffee. Like, <laughs> here you go. And then just like lurked away and, <laughs> and went and sat down for a good like 15 minutes because yeah, my ankle was not super wow. doing so great. Dedication. <laughs> this, you know, <laughs> motivated to, to deliver coffee and joy to everybody that's speaking at NAM. And so. coffee does bring joy. That's it true. It really does. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's it's amazing how how much coffee can turn something around too. <laughs> um, so my other story is um, involves a breakfast session. So during breakfast sessions, I manage the green room, and it's kind of just making sure everyone's where they need to be and everything runs on time so people get to stage and we know everybody that's in there um, who's speaking and so Thursday morning is usually breakfast of champions and it, it's over and a lot of people want to talk to Joe so one of the things I do is kind of um, our, our CEO Joe Lamond I don't know if I need to clear that up but <laughs> 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 so uh, Mr. Lamond uh, when he comes off the stage a lot of people want to say hi and talk to him and this particular day um, the Disneyland band was opening the show 
So I'm a, a huge Disney fan, and of course I wanted to see Mickey march down Grand Plaza. Like I was, I was in it, and then we found out Joe wanted to do it, and also Alicia, who is an event manager here. So we think we're gonna help Joe get to the Grand Plaza, and we're like, all right, Joe, follow us. So we're like trying to, you know, look important, like we're <laughs> like security, and um, we're not getting very far. Like every ten steps, we're being stopped, and he's so nice to like stop and say hello and greet people um, because he's just really patient like that. And meanwhile, I'm going, Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I want to see Mickey Mouse. So I think Joe kind of notices I'm like desperately looking out the window, like trying to, and he and he just turns to me and Leash and he goes, okay, guys, come with me. And I'm like, all right. So we go walking the opposite way of the escalators and I'm like, what is happening? And all of a sudden a door that I didn't even know was there flings open and there's a set of stairs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're running down the stairs. So the three of us are like just kicking it down the stairs. The door opens and I swear it was like we were like lifted onto the Grand Plaza <laughs> and I look to my left and there's the Disneyland band and I'm like, Mickey Mouse! <laughs> 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 and I'm like, thank you, Joe. Like, and of course, like I lose Joe and Leisha, and I'm just kind of like lost in the the Disneyland van. It was, I think that was my first January show working for Nam too. So it was a great like Thursday morning kickoff <laughs> situation. So really exciting, and you know, every year there's a chance for new memories. Awesome. So. Very cool. Awesome. My name is Luke Walton. I'm the marketing manager in Marcom here at Nam. Um, I'm just finishing up my first he first year at Nam, and uh, my very first Nam show was the 2010 Nam show that I attended. Mm, oh, fantastic! Nice. Yeah, I was going to school at USC at the time, and uh, we got guest badges. And um, I don't know if I don't know if they knew about Gen Next or not, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, we we came in and uh, yeah, totally mind blowing experience. Um, especially, I mean, I'm from San Diego and probably the most gear I'd ever seen was at Guitar Center. And then to be surrounded by everything, I, I, I didn't even know what to do with myself. <laughs> um, so my NAMM show story. Um, I'm actually going to go back to when I was attending. Um, this is the my second NAMM show, um, so the 2011 NAMM show. And I was, I met an artist um, at USC and she was the daughter of Tom Johnston, the uh, singer and one of the founders of the Doobie Brothers. And so I was really excited. This was my first gig playing uh, guitar for her. So I was filling in for one of her other guitarists. And so she said, hey, we have this gig at the NAMM show and, and I'd love you to come play. So I'd, I'd been once before, I'm kind of freaking out, like, hey, I get to actually go play music <laughs> at this thing. And I'm, I'm like, I'm wondering how, am I gonna be allowed to bring my guitar in? Like, how are they gonna know? And um, and so I'm all set, we rehearse, I'm all good. At the same time, I'm um, building a recording studio and I dropped a steel, well, wasn't exactly my fault. They built this, the recording uh, studio door a little bit too big, so it fell off the hinges and it mm. shattered my toe. Oh, oh. ouch. And so, Ow. and so I had a you know, totally messed up toe. I'm, I'm in crutches and, and walking and I'm like, I realize, oh my God, I have to go to the NAMM show in crutches and play a gig. <laughs> and so I'm going across the campus. I'm like, I should have gotten a wheelchair or something. And, um, and you know, digging out, I'm sweating. I'm trying to carry my guitar at the same time as my crutches. And I get into um, the space. I think it was uh, uh, in the in the Hilton. And um, 
I'm, I'm starting to get set up. And uh, Ken Calais, the um, record producer, Fleetwood Mac, and he walks over um, and it, uh, uh, he's having like a, a talk and it's talking about like women in music because Colby Calais, uh, his daughter, um, super popular artist, especially at the time. And uh, he walks over to me and he goes, the first thing he does is he walks up and he tries to step on my toe. Oh. <laughs> 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 so I play my gig and that, I don't know, th- that's just kind of my one-two punch of my <laughs> my initiation into the NAMM show. It's like somebody that I find found super famous and was in awe of, uh, he's coming after my toe. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I end up working there. <laughs> Is that why you you wanted to work at NAMM? Um, I mean, part of it was just that I had, you know, I had a lot of experience with the show. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I wanted to, to do um, with my career is I really like um, global initiatives um, and I really love music and music products industry. So uh, NAM seemed like an opportunity to fit both of those um, loves in. And I'm also from this area. So I, I grew up in Encinitas and we're in Carlsbad. So it was nice to come back mm. to my favorite place in the world. I've traveled quite a bit and nothing's quite like San Diego. So awesome. Yeah. Very cool. It's delightful. Yeah. Hello, it's Mike Mullins. I've been at NAMM for about three years now. I think a little more than three years. I am the multimedia specialist for the NAMM Resource Center. And my first NAMM show, um, I don't remember the year, but I think I was like six or seven years old since I grew up in the industry. So imagine a six-year-old Mike walking around the NAMM show. <laughs> I saw a picture. It's actually adorable. You <laughs> oh, and your sister. Did you get like yeah. little yeah. headphones and everything? It, well, yeah. I, you had the earplugs because, you know, I was under 18 and I didn't want to lose my hearing that quick. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I remember a little bit from that NAMM show, um, more so Disneyland than actually walking around <laughs> the show floor. Um, but I just remember it being more musical instruments than I could have ever imagined seeing and being able to go to, uh, I remember the Roland area, they had like their own building in those days. <laughs> and it was like, like a, there was a soundstage set up and all of their kits and trying all their different gear that I've only had heard of at that time. Um, and then more recently, let's see, cause I went on and off throughout my entire life to NAMM shows and um, started interning at NAMM in 2016. And that show was interesting. The 2017 uh, January NAMM show was interesting because uh, at that show, it rained more in Southern California than I think it has ever rained ever in the history of the state. I, I do think it still <laughs> holds the record of the most rainfall in a certain amount of time. Yeah, I yeah think so. it was absolutely insane. And when you're an intern for NAMM, um, you have to work with all of the departments. So you don't really have like what we have with the resource center where we just kind of set up shop at our in our two rooms. Um, so I had to run around the entire campus um, to the ACC, to the Hilton, um, up all the floors <laughs> into the Marriott, back to my hotel and just completely soaked. I remember <laughs> I would walk around and I, there was water like coming out of the soles of my shoes. <laughs> like the pockets I had were just like filling up with water. So that was interesting. <laughs> Maybe not, not the most glamorous memory, but if I have to think back to one specific show, it's that one underwater. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Stacy Cohen. I am the event coordinator here at NAM. I've been here for about two years. My first name show was Winter Dam 2018. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here you have a lovely story 
little fantastical adventure, if you will. I met a mythical creature <gasps> at NAM 2019. She saved the day. She was sent from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, <laughs> directly from my prayers to our pool, actually. What happened? How did that... How did that pop on down? Uh, Nam hosts, co-hosts with a few sponsors, the Pro Audio Pool Party, hosted annually at the Marriott on our campus. And this year we decided to take it up a notch. We included some glowing furniture, some cool signs. Of course, since it's Pro Audio, we had to have a really cool DJ. Um we just tried to make it much cooler of a party than it traditionally has been, and we were very successful until setup started, and there was an apparent breakdown in communication between myself and some of our vendors when it came to clings, which we print a ton of clings, and we were printing them specifically to go onto all of our high top tables, our bar, our DJ stand, all of the furniture that glows, which makes it look cool and lit up at night. Um, so the clings that I thought I ordered were see-through clings, so everything would still light up, but it turns out the clings that I ordered were the white, absolutely not see-through clings. So nothing was now going to light up. So it was a very small but very large issue because in one swoop, my lighting and deco were both out the window, which is not a good thing you want to have happen at any party, let alone a sponsored party, also, the very first party that you're hosting, <laughs> <laughs> that was my first party of the NAM show. So that was not good. Uh, so we quickly re regrouped and had Freeman print some more things for us that would work. We yanked giant clings off of one place and put them another, came up with some tabletop signs. Freeman really came in clutch for us in, in that instant, but we were a little concerned uh, with what the sponsors would would say to that, which they were both wonderful and gracious, so there was no problem. However, uh, we decided to try and make them feel better, and I ran across the, the Grand Plaza through the beautiful crowds of people and artists and stole some flowers from ourselves that we were supposed <laughs> to be using for other events. Stole those, grabbed those awkwardly with my giant show notebook, thought, hey, let's give them some NAMM show pillows. So I grabbed some NAMM show pillows, and I am quickly walking, if not running, carrying two very large floral arrangements and two pillows and a notebook and all like trying to talk into my Apple Watch to answer the 75,000 messages you get within every 10 minutes at the name show. So it was a really poised and graceful position for me to be seen in running from the Hilton to the Marriott doing this. It was really great. So on the way, I also met uh, one of our Freeman associates on the Grand Plaza to pick up a sign that they had asked us to print sort of last minute, but of course we were going to do it for them. They had a DJ that was no longer able to attend, so they sent us his PR package and asked us to print out uh, as big as we could get it without getting grainy, like a life-size picture of him, like a pop-up, just so people could take pictures with it and make him feel like he was there. Fun thing to do, because everyone knew, knew this guy, apparently. So as I am carrying all the things and meeting Freeman. I'm like, how am I going to carry a, a cardboard cutout of a human also over there? It turns out I didn't have to because the biggest they could get it was like mm, two and a half feet tall. <laughs> so that also happened. So we also delivered to them a miniature version of the life-size <laughs> DJ <laughs> they were hoping for. So <clears throat> that was great. So I get back over to the venue and I have one of our contractors with us and she is wonderfully walking them through all of the the changes and what we've done to try to fix things that happened 
Um, and I'm awkwardly trying to put out flowers and put up a pillow and the handwritten, sorry, thank you for being great notes. So we've written to both of these sponsors and trying to not let them see the very tiny, funny DJ just yet. <laughs> Luckily, they thought it was hilarious. So that was oh, we, that was a win. Um, but as I'm standing there and I'm frustrated and a little a lot of flustered and also still trying to keep up with everything else going on in the name show this girl comes up to me and is like excuse me hey are you are you doing this party and i'm like yes with like the gritted smile that you hope <laughs> says go away <laughs> but really if everyone's watching it says how can i help you today yes <laughs> And she's like, oh, okay, when does it start? And I'm like, it starts really soon. <laughs> My hands are really full with the same smile. And she just keeps like asking questions like, well, how do you get in? And do I need a ticket? And I'm like, no, it's, it's GA, what do you want? And she's just asking a lot of questions and giving me this weird face. And, and eventually I turn around and probably not very politely said, can I help you with something? What do you want? And she's like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out if I can swim in the pool. And in my brain, I'm like, lady, are you, how many have you had? It is 6 p.m., but whatever. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a closed party. We close off the pool, and it's, it's kind of a hazard to serve drinks and have people swimming in a pool. So no, you may not swim in the pool. And she goes, well, I'm a mermaid. And at that point, my brain just stopped <laughs> and was like, you have reached your capacity for ridiculousness on this first day of now. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? She's like, yeah, I'm a mermaid. And she's like, she motions me over. There's like this glass partition at the Marriott pool. So I walk over. I've lost the flowers and the pillows and the tiny DJ. And I'm just like, I'm just, what? Hi, who are you? I'm just like, I'm a mermaid. That's really cool. Tell me more about it. So she starts flipping through her phone, showing me pictures of her indeed being a mermaid. There's a whole mer culture I was unaware of. You've everyone seen like the mermaids at the pools or the parties or like the aquarium or something. So she is that. Hmm. Uh, she also proceeded to tell me a really cool story about uh, a, a car accident and brain injury that she suffered many years ago and how uh, swimming had become her PT and it was the only thing that really helped her. And then she discovered this mermaid culture and how that was like, it's actually her therapy. And she told me she was feeling a little dry and she needed to get in the pool because she'd been out walking all day and she was tired and she wanted to swim. I was like, well, uh, the pool's closed. She was like, no, I was going to swim like for your party. So all the light bulbs start going off in my head and all the like, don't do it, it's a liability. And it's like, but that would be really cool. And then we didn't approve it with the Marriott, but it would be really cool. So I'm just like staring at her. I'm like, well, how much do you charge? And then she says nothing. Now all of the red flags of don't just let someone you don't know get into your party in a pool in a mermaid costume, just like out the door. <laughs> she was free. And I was like, how soon can you be here? And she's like, uh, I can be back in like 20 minutes. And there was like a very awkward moment for her, probably not for me. I was just doing all of the things in my brain of, how am I going to explain this to Marriott? How am I going to explain this to my boss? What if she hits her head? Am I going to prison? Meh. I was like, deal. And she walked away and I walked over to our other contractor and our sponsors. And I was like, hey guys, I'm so sorry for all of the mess up. Here's what we've done. Uh, we kicked in some extra money for the open bar so that it could be more of a party and explained everything that was going on. And at the end of it, uh, I told uh, our other contractor, I said, also, we're going to have a mermaid. They'll be swimming in the pool. And she quietly said to them with a very awkward look on her face, also, there will be a, a, mer a mermaid <laughs> a mermaid in the pool. Like, she had heard it wrong. And, of course, they all stared at me like, what? It's like, yeah, we've, we have a mermaid. Uh, she's clearly not a real mermaid, but uh, she looks like one, so that's good news. And she's going to be swimming in the pool for the party, just as, like, a cool attraction, which is apparently a really big thing these days. Um, and again, they kind of 
stared at me the same way that I stared at the mermaid when she told me she was a mermaid, <laughs> which is understandable. And we explained a little more, and I was like, yeah, she'll be, she's not going to talk to anybody. She'll just hang out. She said she can come up and take pictures and so forth and so such. And one of the sponsors, uh, who was English, so I have to use his accent so it's the greatest thing I've ever heard, ever, just kind of pauses and grabs the other sponsor by the shoulder and goes, you mean to tell me there'll be a mermaid <laughs> in my party? He was so jazzed, and thus the party was saved, and it was great. And the Lord answered my prayers because the whole while I'm like waddling across the Grand Plaza with a, like a dwarfed DJ and pillows and stolen flowers. And I'm like, Jesus, save my party because I have ruined it. And he was like, girl, here's a mermaid. Easy day. So the mermaid showed up. She was great. Her name is Riff Raff. She was lovely. She was professional. Everyone loved her. And the be my best part, and this is all said with love, Shadi, if you ever hear this, Shadi is our partner at the Marriott. And I happened to be standing out at the pool when he came out just to check on things. He walked up, stood next to me, and saw the mermaid, and his face just fell. He goes, there's a mermaid in the pool. I was like, yep, yep, there is. He goes, where did you get a mermaid? It's <laughs> like, I got, I brought her. He was like, really? I've always wanted a mermaid. <laughs> he was so disappointed that I put the mermaid in the pool and he didn't get to put the mermaid in the pool. So I let him go pretty much all evening until a little post day wrap up with him thinking that I had the forethought to throw a mermaid into the pool party. So uh, Riff Raff and her pod will be hopefully joining us in 2020. Mermaids live in pods, mm. little known fact. Um, so yeah. That's a great story. That's, That's amazing. Awesome. Very Thank good. you. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. Wonderful. My name is Kate Mitchell. I'm the trade show operations coordinator. I've been at NAM for about two years now, and my first NAM show was 2018. My story also involves some kind of mythical creature, but uh, <laughs> he he's also a real man <laughs> who doesn't know the truth. Um, so I'm leaving the uh, ACC, the AM Convention Center, about nine o'clock or so on Friday night, just after the big headlining sh band has gone off at the stage. And Sinbad happened to be the presenter for that show that night. And I don't know if you know me at all, uh, I have a little obsession with Sinbad. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, his performance in a movie called Shazam that came out in the 90s, but some people like to not believe that that happened. <laughs> and uh, I have been following this for years, and it, you know, it's an obsession of mine. It's called the Mandela Effect. Uh, people think that things happened in one timeline and then in another timeline they didn't, and we're in the current timeline where Shazam did not happen. So, uh, I'm leaving the ACC. It's been a 14-hour day. I am exhausted. I am ready to go back to my hotel room waiting for my late dinner. And I see Sinbad next to the stage. I'm like, oh my gosh, this may be my one opportunity in life. <laughs> you know, I've thought about this man for years and his performance in Shazam for so long. What do I do with this opportunity? He's being bombarded by other people, you know. Is this really appropriate? It's appropriate for me. <laughs> so I just walk up to near where he is with, you know, about 10 other people, a few security guards, and I go, Sinbad. He turns around. Yes. <laughs> What's the deal with Shazam? <laughs> 
To which he replied, that never happened. And I lost that moment of opportunity to say, you're living the lie, man. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the wrong dimension. You're in the wrong dimension. But I, I walked away from there on cloud nine, knowing that I had talked to him about it, but also very disappointed that he was living in this lie, that it didn't happen. Uh, I called my best friend immediately and and started yelling about meeting Sinbad, and, and she was just ecstatic that I had met him and felt so right because she is on the other side, Oof. you know? And so uh, I, I'm just gonna say everyone's living the lie. <laughs> <laughs> That is great. Well, since Stacy and I are both here, actually, um, maybe we can joint talk about uh, Friday also at the NAMM show. What What was Friday? Oh, Friday night when you got a lovely package. Are you oh, kidding? That look. I don't... Start, start the story. No. No. <laughs> this isn't is NAMM show related. This is NAMM staff related. That, which is the whole point of this podcast, right? Same step and out. We don't. I just want to know now. I'm just curious. Yeah. Stacy and I both love this beautiful <laughs> singer named Rebecca Black. I do not love oh. Rebecca Black. She sings a lovely song <laughs> called Friday. She it's is in a the timeline where I am in the timeline where she doesn't exist. I reject that reality. It is a celebration <laughs> of everything that Friday is about. I'm sure you've heard this beautiful song. So I like to help Stacy feel great on Fridays by providing her with memes or songs about uh, from Rebecca Black to let her be. Or straight up assault, as I would call it. I like her to feel the celebration and joy of Friday every Friday That's for the fair. last year or so. And so during the NAMM show, even though I'm working 14, 15 hour days and there's not a moment of time in my life, I didn't want her to forget the joy of Friday. <laughs> yeah, you want me to tell you what she did? Does this count? Should we have this conversation? Sure. I mean, yeah. Of course we should. So, I'm just thinking through all the things I'm going to. Well, I'll tell my side for you. you. No, 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 no. Put your mic down. So, (laughs) as an operations staff member, we were on site for a very long time, which means I had two Fridays. We were there for like two weeks on site. So the first Friday, we had we just we just get there and we're setting up and everything. And I get to my staff office. There's an envelope in there that has my name on it. And I'm like, oh, gosh, already I'm getting crap sent in my office. Like, what is this? And so I, like, start unpacking and I do all the things. And I finally get to the envelope. And I'm a like, manila envelope it's like that a, looked very official. I thought someone had delivered tickets to some event, yeah. wristbands. I get all kinds of weird things doing the meetings and events. And so I go and I'm opening it up. And I, like, am reading something else or looking at something else. And something falls on my lap. It's a little white piece of paper. And I'm like, what the heck? It is filled with Rebecca Black memes. <laughs> just like, <laughs> just filled with Rebecca Black memes. You're so busy on that Friday, and yet you had a little joy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I would use the word joy, but <laughs> I was impressed. I was impressed nonetheless. So the following Friday rolls around, which there's a lot happening all of the time on campus. But It's this, during the actual during show. During the actual show. It was, it was day two, so I was like dead by that point. So I get back to my office at 10 p.m., 11, I don't know what time it is, and a few other members of our staff, we've, we've wrapped the show, and of course we're starving, so we order room service. We're all crammed into our office that does not have room for room service, so we're just aggressively like actual animals shoving food into our faces. 
And there are a lot of things that get delivered to our office that get delivered to me specifically because I'm kind of the liaison for a lot of events. So it's not odd for boxes and things to be stacked on my desk. And I go over and I start going through all of them like, oh, tickets, like comp to that event. These are for XCOM. This is, oh, this is this. And there's like a big box. And I'm like, oh, what is this? And I like, note we get gift boxes from different like, vendors like and stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Usually we just like put it in the staff office and we're like, here you go, everyone free snacks. So that's what I thought this was. And so I like open it. And there's like the paper filling shreds that that they use. and like a beautiful Easter basket. It was really nice. I'm like, oh, this will be good. Like, oh, free snacks. This is great. I'm so hungry. I'm exhausted. And I open and I like dig through and what is there but another freaking Rebecca Black meme. It was framed. <laughs> it was framed. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally in front of our whole staff who all but Alicia had just met me like this week and I went Ah, Kate! <laughs> they were just—they're all like pause with their food, and they're like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, and I pick it up, and of course, Alicia starts laughing because she knows what it is, and the rest of them are just like, "What is wrong with you? What is happening?" <laughs> and again, I was impressed, but I hate you so much right now. <laughs> Nothing impressed me more than Friday at Summer Nam. Oh yeah, 2019. True. I got through the whole day. With no Rebecca Blacking, no mention of Friday, Friday, got to get down on Friday. And I'm standing, like, head counting at our Friday night event in Davidson Ballroom. I'm just standing there, and I'm, like, counting people and, like, looking at the plates and doing math. I'm like, we're really good. And watching all the weird security things that happen with people trying to get in. And and I, I'm reading emails, doing all the things, standing one place, not moving. Kate comes by, and she's like, hey, how's it going? I was like, oh, it's going good. How are you? And she's like, I'm good. I was like, are you still manning the door for us down there? And she's like, yeah. And so she walks away. And then my phone goes, airdrop. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> she drive by airdrops me like an album of framed. It's a frame. It's a picture of she had a framed Rebecca Black meme. And she took it all around show site and took pictures of it in different places with different people. She got Freeman AV to put the big Rebecca Black picture like up on the pic on the TVs and Idea Center. And I got on stage with it and yeah. celebrated her. <laughs> like she had pictures I, oh, of I also have a friend who works at She had uh, someone Fender. sing the song live. We went to a whisper room and he sang the song live for her. It was great. <laughs> I, I just stood there. I was just like how? <laughs> How? I dropped her a package, you know, a Friday celebration package. I love it. Yeah. Very thoughtful. It was. It was so thoughtful. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Oh, yeah. So thoughtful. <laughs> so now Kate gets one Friday a month. <laughs> we have we have reduced this to every Friday to you get one. Mm -hmm. You get to pick it, but you get one Friday a month where you get to harass me. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to have problems. <laughs> I don't know what the ramifications are if I break these rules, but uh, I'm willing to find out. <laughs> My name is BJ Morgan. I am the marketing manager for the Museum of Making Music. I have been at NAM and the museum for 19 years this October, so it'll be my 19th anniversary. Uh, my first NAM show was when I was a sophomore at Indiana State University, and gosh, what year was that? 96, 97, it would have been 1997, I believe, or maybe 98. It was the first time the NAMM show was in LA, 
98. 98. Okay. That was my first show, too. Right on. Oh. How old are we? <laughs> old. How come I look... You were still in school, though. How come I look older than you, though? How come I look older than you? That's not fair. Uh, so, yeah, my first experience uh, as uh, at the NAMM show was the L.A. show. And already, uh, as a college kid from Indiana State, coming to the West Coast was... It was a it was a crash course in cultural experiences. Like, what's going on? Where are we? How, how do we get to where we're going? Um, I remember my advisor Jim Slutes had. Uh, I was sitting up front in this rented van that we had, and he's like, "Okay, BJ, get us to the Nam show." I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is the days just before like MapQuest was making its way onto the scene. The internet was a, you know, not quite as ubiquitous part of our lives as it was then and so we were using roadmaps to get to the nam show um <laughs> that's I, I that's a story right yeah, right. That's that's a story that story. Itself, yeah. yeah that was that was quite quite a thrill to the nam show um gosh some of my fondest memories or at least the eye-opening uh experiences there as a student uh at the early nam shows was um when they started doing those all industry drum circles it was just a mind-blowing experience because mm. they're so huge and f- for me as a kid from a small college town with two or three drums at our disposal having an entire circle of people yeah. with just this rhythmic you know gut throbbing experience was amazing in and of itself and so you know I, I would I would jumped into that thing you know two feet first you know it was amazing and I remember playing in this all-industry drum circle, just being amazed in the moment and amazed at the entirety of the NAMM show and just the expansiveness of it and the depth. And I am pounding on this drum, just smashing them. And, you know, being a drummer myself, I'm like, this is so great, this is so great. And then I'm like, oh, I got blisters. How did I do that? Oh, no. I And then the gentleman next to me grabs my hand. He's like, oh, no, you need to do this. Nah, 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 nah. And I look at his name tag, and it's Alex Acuna. I'm like, what? Alex Acuna? You've been drumming next to me the whole time, and now you're telling me how to play drums? I will follow you anywhere, Alex Acuna. You're so great. And so that was just... The uh, a pivotal moment for me to realize what type of family this industry really was mm-hmm. from the the pinnacle of performers the you know the the cream of the crop the the people who made their living playing music to you know a college sophomore kid from Backwater Indiana you know having to be able to be in that same type of stage, that same environment with these folks who were making the instruments because I, I was a big fan of, you know, Remo Belly and I got to meet all these people like Vic Firth was there. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're Vic Firth. Oh my gosh, so cool. Oh my gosh, Debbie and Craigie Zildjian. Just the 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 names of all the legacies of the instruments that have, you know, been part of your life for, you know, well, at that point in my life, maybe 10 years. Um and it was just remarkable to, to to make those connections and see how much life really was behind all of the instruments and, and, and the experiences that you take for granted sometimes. You don't really get to to see who's behind or like what processes or what, you know, the, the depth of the community that there is behind these instruments. And that was remarkable. That was just remarkable. So that's, that's one of my favorite moments in time uh, as being part of the NAMM show is was that realization of what a great community it is. 
Wow. Well said. Yeah. Do you remember the show where we unveiled the uh, bust of Henry Steinway at the <laughs> NAM show? BJ and I were behind the scenes moving boxes and getting ready for this event. And I just remember we looked out at the audience and we saw Henry Steinway coming towards the podium. And he, BJ looks at me and I look at BJ and I think you may have said it first, but we both sort of said it at the same time. We're being paid for this. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is the coolest gig we've well, ever had. And not just not just that. It's the moments it, that I remember. One of the 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 last uh, Nam shows that Henry and uh, uh, Mrs. Steinway, Polly, Polly, yeah, uh, that I saw them at, and he was just wheeling her along, and they looked just like the perfect couple. Mm. And you know that they'd had a lifetime in music, and. In passing, I, I you know I, I greeted them, and he remembered who I was, and and uh, I was so touched by that. I'm like, there's this these this family of the industry who's been stalwarts, mm. and, and just making making a connection with them, all that they've done here uh, uh, for the museum of making music anyway, and all of their support, and then uh, being able to connect on a personal level with them too. I mean, they're these are just folks. These are just people uh, like your own brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents. They're people. And it, sometimes, you know, until you make those moments and they're friends, you know, until you make, make, make that realization, you know, we kind of, you know, we do put a lot of these folks on, on pedestals because they've done so much mm-hmm. for the industry and in the industry and innovating and, um, you know, business ideas and everything that they've accomplished until, you know, you have these experiences where it's like, oh, you know, you're, you're just, we're, we're, we're like each other. We're all in, in the part, you know, on, the, on the same team and the same family and the same ecosystem. It, yeah, it still absolutely blows me away. Just the other day, uh, Mike and I were at uh, Taylor Guitars and Bob Bob Taylor sees me and says, "Hey Dan," like he sees me every day, <laughs> right. and it's like, "I love you." This is, I mean, a part of this family. This is so cool. <laughs> that's that's another funny story too. It's another Nam. So it's semi semi Nam show, show related story. My dad was uh, an early owner of one of the early Taylor guitars, like late seventies, probably seventy eight, seventy nine, and he shared a story. My dad used to go to the Nam show when it was in Chicago, and way before my time, obviously. But you know, he he remembers when. Um, the the guys at Taylor would call him. It's like, how do you like your guitar? Is the guitar okay? Is the guitar okay? And so he would always tell me that story. And then the summer Nam show of twenty fifteen, I believe it was, was the only, was the one summer that it was in Indianapolis. And my folks, being from Indiana, they they came down. Oh no, into twenty fifteen, two thousand five. I've been married longer than that. That was the year I got married. So that's that's I remember that. Um, uh, they came down. I'm like, hey, Dad, that that's Bob Taylor over there. You should, you know, should say hi. He's like, oh no, I don't want to bother him. I'm like, go ahead. He would love to hear the story of your, you know, when you bought the Taylor guitar and you were so impressed by them and their their customer service and their their caring about the brand and the instrument. And so that was the opportunity I got to say, here, check out this check out this community. Go go mm, talk to these folks. They're that's awesome. You know, they're remarkable people. Very cool. Wow. How did your dad get into the show? What he used to work for um, Bill Wagner, uh, oh. Wagner's Music Store in Plymouth, Indiana. He was uh, uh, he taught guitar there for many, many years, and uh, I think Bill passed away probably about five or six years ago. But he was in that store. You know, I remember that that was this music store I grew up with hmm. as a kid, uh, small farming community, man, Wagner's Music Store, and, and so I think he went with Bill to the shows because uh, it was you know it was in Chicago. The store was in northern Indiana, so it was a quick drive for them. Very cool. 
I'm sorry, I'm doing an interview with you. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> that's all right. No, that was awesome. great. Good stories. Yeah, right. Thanks, BJ. Perfect. Hey, everyone. My name is Michelle Shedler. I have been at NAM for about a year. My title is Archivist and Oral History Coordinator. My very first NAM show is the one that I'm actually going to talk about because as of this date, it is, has been my only NAM show, and that was 2019. Um, my favorite NAM show memory, to give you some context, because it was my first show, I needed to be shown around. So Mike graciously showed me all the different halls and where everything was located. Good and job, Mike. Right. Yeah. I'm just stepping up, you know, <laughs> that that's awesome. what I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, you hear over and over how big the NAM show is. But until you've been there, you don't realize how big the show is. So I'm just trying to get my bearings. Well, either the next day or shortly after that, didn't have much time to kind of really like explore where everything was at the show, but I was asked to go grab somebody for one of our interviews. The location of this company's booth was like well across campus and Again, well, wasn't it the end of Hall D or something? I don't. I'm I not, think so. I don't it even was, remember. It was, it was yeah. far. It was either either back of C or D. Yeah. If you've been to the show, that's like good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, hold on, what day was it too? It was like right after we got there. Or what? I right mean, after you're I walking, got there. you're walking, you're like, is am I in Waco yet? I right, mean, it's yeah. like it's, it seems yeah. like forever. Like, and then there was that whole like the ACC, and I'm like, okay, all right, that's it's fine. I got this, <laughs> and I was very confident um, in my ability to just grab a random stranger off the floor. So um, we had roughly 10 minutes or so, not even, right? It was like five minutes before this interview was supposed to start. So I'm like, I got this, I'm gonna do it. And I'm in heels <laughs> and I start sprinting across the campus. Um, luckily I had, you know, the NAM badge. So I quickly paused, got my badge looked at, I kept sprinting, and I think I was even in a dress. It's fine. I'm sure it looked awesome. So um, I go across the floor. Go. I find this booth. I think I had to circle like four times, so I'm still trying to navigate around the show. And I finally get to the booth, and I'm like, hi, your name is what I need. I don't know you, but you have an interview. He's like, okay. So then he follows me. <laughs> sprinting. I'm sprinting across campus. Um, again, like I feel like leaping over bushes and a little dramatic, but that's how I felt. And we made it in time for the interview and it was great. I just remember when you got back, it was like, how, where did this <laughs> I come know. from? I thought for sure we we're going to have to reschedule. I was like, oh, there's no way she's getting back. She's probably not even there yet. And here you appeared. I specifically yep. remember saying to Dan too, right after you left, I was like, I don't know if she's going to be ever come back. <laughs> like that might be the last time we see her. <laughs> uh, yep. So uh, in case anyone was curious, there are people all around the show that you can ask for where booth locations are. <laughs> um, so you have that available to you. Good job. Awesome. Great memory. My name is Dana Hofseth. Uh, I'm the Director of Human Resources and Administration. I have been at NAM for seven years and four or five months now. My very first show, uh, NAM show, was 2012. It's actually when I was a candidate for the position, but not yet hired, and I attended a couple of days at the show by invitation from, uh, from NAM. So apparently they had invited several of the 
finalist candidates, and I was one of those. In fact, um, one of my stories, um, one of the most memorable situations occurred at that show. Um, <clears throat> it was all brand new to me, and we were walking the aisles. My wife and I actually, uh, Becky and I, were walking the aisles, and we stopped at this one um, exhibit where they were having a demo. It was a demo of a bass guitar, and the person who was demoing it had uh, helped to develop it and design it, and so he was going through the features of it. And standing in front of us were two couples. One couple was, by all appearances, probably the mom and pop shop owners of a small music store somewhere in the Midwest. They just had that kind of appearance. Um, the way they dressed. Uh, I lived in the Midwest for nine years, kind of, there's a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then right next to them was this couple that was totally punked out. <laughs> the hair, the dress, the color, everything was total punk. And both of these couples were standing there watching the same demo of this hmm. bass guitar. And I just sort of stepped back and said, this is so cool <laughs> to see what NAM is made of. And then over the years, that same thing has just been reinforced over and over again, that uh, it's such a diverse um, group of people that we bring together. Um, so it was really cool. Before I ever came on board to see that kind of uh, uh, eccentricities that were involved, and yet, uh, both of them so in tune, so in touch, uh, so much enjoying the very same demonstration. Uh, that's music. Right. Uh, it yeah. brings us that, together. That's so. the yin and the yang of the NAMM show. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was crazy. That's it, a good it example. Really, it was really cool. Um, one of the other things I, I remember, again, involved my wife. I was <clears throat> taking a break and walking the aisles with her when she had come um, a couple of years ago. And I stopped by the Alfred booth, and I saw Ron Manis. And I just stopped to introduce my wife to Ron, because I had gotten to know Ron while he was on the board of directors. And I've always enjoyed him. And uh, his response, um, I thought, was just so heartwarming, so wonderful. And it again, it epitomized um, what I see in so many of our NAM members, the way that he just sort of um, en enveloped us, welcomed us, uh, was so excited to meet my wife. Um, yeah, it was just uh, fun things like that when you see about the members that are so engaging, um, so warm. Um, yeah, it was, it was just a, a great memory for me. Uh, and Ron Manis was a part of that. Uh, I remember one show, um, one of our staff members, and, and it happens with some regularly, they, somebody gets sick. But in this particular situation, it was um, the person was really out, and they were not going to be able to be a part of fulfilling their duties for really several days. And it was, again, just so cool the way the staff uh, stepped up to the plate where others in in the department that this person was in just filled in the blanks um, made sure that everything was covered um, and people outside the department offering help uh, just to make sure everything was going to be fine and even though this person wasn't able to do the job they wanted to do um, 
the staff. Uh, again, a story about just who we are as a, a company and and the kind of people we've gathered for our our staff. It was it was really a wonderful um, reflection um, to see how everybody stepped up. Wow. Um, those are the kind of things I, I really value and appreciate about uh, about NAM, about our members. That's awesome. Well said. Yeah. yeah. I really like that you have um, like the three different perspectives. So the things that you've seen at the NAM show, the amount of welcome you receive from members of our organization, and then also just like how our staff also stepped up. So that was a really nice perspective, just listening to all three of those. Plus, I think my thoughts are um, regarding the staff story. You know, w- nobody wants anybody to get sick during an AM show. It's like <laughs> the worst time. Mm-hmm. And everybody feels bad when you have a little sore throat. Uh-oh, around Christmas, <laughs> you're like, ah, gargling every day and stuff. <laughs> but it is overwhelming to me to see the staff who's – burden is already pretty substantial Mm -hmm. to say, okay, I can help with this and I can do that. And what else do you need? It is, it it happens almost every show to some degree, but when, so I remember the particular story you're talking about, it was a little daunting because Mm -hmm. this is a very important person doing very important things. And so everybody, I remember just saying, okay, take a deep breath. What can we do? And you're, there's a sense of pride because at one, one day might be you, you know? And so it's really great that this is a team effort and, and really kind of a family. And it, it shows up all over the place. Uh, it really does. Um, because you're right, it doesn't happen just once. It happens uh, to a certain degree at every show, mm-hmm. but uh, sometimes more than others, and people really step up. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Situation. That was awesome. My name is Jonathan Piper. I am the manager of artifacts and exhibitions for the NAM Museum of Making Music. Uh, I've been at NAM for just shy of two years now. Uh, my first NAM show was 2018, um, and it was actually I I. It's funny. It was my first NAM show year, but I didn't actually go to that NAM show hmm. uh, because my wife was pregnant and hmm. due to give birth four days after the end of the NAM show. Uh, and so it was already a bit of a tense time for us. Uh, she was worried that I, you know, if she came a little bit early, then I, you know, I wouldn't be there, something like that. So I was up um, in Anaheim on the Monday before the launch of the NAMM show doing all the setup and everything and kind of realizing everything moves a little bit slower than you think it's going to um, and kind of worried that, you know, I were we going to get done before the launch on Thursday? And woke up Tuesday morning all ready to go back up to Anaheim, and my wife says, eh, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> so then I have to start making all the calls to my team and everybody and saying, hey, we're already a little bit behind schedule, and now I'm not going to be there. Um, so and of good course, luck. Yeah. <laughs> and I had only been on the team for three months at that point. Wow. So as the new guy, I felt especially, uh, I guess, embarrassed, a little embarrassed to say, mm. yeah, I'm, I can't even go to the NAMM show, and you all have to pick up my slack. <laughs> and it was a big thing you guys were doing up there, too, by the way. It's it was the, feet. the Henry Diltz installation, yeah. uh, wow. hanging up lots of photos. Oh, and then the best part, of course, is that it was a really drawn-out labor. So it started on a Tuesday. Baby didn't come until the Friday. 
so of God. course, oh, every no. few hours, the team's like, hey, where's the picture? Where's the baby? <laughs> and you're I like, say, I promise yeah, it's a real I baby. I swear. <laughs> um, and I have to keep saying, nothing yet, nothing yet. Um, and, yeah, and, and they hang out the photos, the show launches, and I'm just sitting around. Oh, man. You know. So you weren't surprised when there was a voodoo doll of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it all makes sense now that yeah. you mentioned it. Um, and of course now I'm you know kind of in the same situation where my wife was due last week with her second uh, and I'm still here hanging on and everyone keeps it like the pictures. It's, the picture? it's, it, it's a weird situation where, you know, everybody thought I was lying last time about my life being <laughs> Now they think I'm lying about the second one because, of course, assuming the baby comes in the next couple days, I won't be around to deinstall the accordion installation. Mm. Uh, so everyone thinks I'm doing I've, I've planned this to get out of <laughs> all the work. It is an elaborate plan. Yeah. That's for sure. Or, yeah, very well prepared. Yeah. Find out exactly when all the big events are going to happen around here. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have any children is what I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to you know hatch these schemes. I wouldn't have time for kids. <laughs> oh, perfect. Oh my goodness. Uh, very good. Very good. Awesome. My name is Shelley Salazi, and I'm the Director of Public Relations and Social Media for NAM. I've been with the organization for just over three years. And awesome. my Gosh, you know, my first NAMM show, I want to say, was 2009, January of 2009. Um, it was the um, Anaheim show in January. And when I had arrived at Taylor at the end of the summer of uh, 2008, um, I kept hearing about NAM, NAM this, NAM that, what is NAM, and, and people talking about it in general. And uh, I remember asking myself, what is it? What is it exactly? And asking my peers, and I'd hear different things. Um, you know, it's an industry conference. Well, that doesn't sound like too much fun. <laughs> it is a uh, industry trade show. Also didn't sound like a super <laughs> cool time. Um, and then I, I called a friend and I said, have you ever heard of Nam, who is a gigging musician? And he's like, Nam, are you kidding me? Nam is the Disneyland for musicians. It is the one-stop shop for everyone in the industry to get together. And it's just three days of fun. So I came to my first NAM show expecting three days of fun, and I think I probably ended up having five days of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I have a lot of stories, um, and I will say, and, and you know, over the, uh, I guess, 10 plus years now of NAM shows, it seems so little, but it really is um, compared to many others in our industry. I've had a, the chance to work with a lot of notable names, um, notable brands, notable people, notable musicians, but something that always stood out to me, and I thought about this coming in today, was the um, NAM Foundation and some of their invited organizations who do come to the show. Uh, they have one organization, and probably one among many, but certainly one I know about, uh, that works with autistic young adults. And music and music therapy is part of their schooling, essentially. And I'll never forget this one time I was standing in the middle of all the trade show hubbub, right? There's a million things going on around you. Someone's playing stairway over to here on, you know, <laughs> guitars and there's business conversations happening and 
people are asking when, you know, the next performer's coming on stage. And uh, this group of young adults walked in. And I recognized someone with them. And I went over and said hi to my friend who was with them. And he started talking to me about why they were at the show, courtesy of the NAMM Foundation, and what they were doing. And I was told that one of the young adults with them, let's call him Alex, uh, was nonverbal. But when he would hear certain songs, he would sing along to them. And uh, I said, gosh, that's just so amazing. You know, what an amazing power, you know, of music. And one of the other students that was with Alex was a guitar player. And he got one of the guitars down off the wall and he started playing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And to see this young gentleman who was nonverbal hear the beginning strums of that song and begin to break into song himself and sing, standing there in the middle of this room with his eyes shut and just a beautiful, melodic, pitch-perfect voice. Hmm. All was right with the world. Hmm. He stood there, eyes shut, performed the song just for the little group around him. And I thought at that moment, it reaffirmed my belief that music is too important to leave to the professionals, right? We need to idolize and hold up and, and champion for every person in this world to make music. And so that's probably my most uh, poignant mm, sure <laughs> damn is. show wow. memory. That's Oof. amazing. Yeah, it wow. definitely get, that, was, that was good. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, you know, uh, all my friends are at NAM. All my friends are at NAM. Whether that's here in the office or it's at the show, no matter who you are, you're an important part of the ecosystem of our industry. And walking into a NAMM show, your first time as I was, you know, 10 plus years ago, um, I wasn't ever alone. There were people there that I met that I'm still friends with to this day. Um, I met my husband as a result of working in this industry. And um, I think that there's a lot to be said for the way NAMM attendees and us as an industry come together and support each other. That's beautiful. Very well said. That's absolutely true. We all love it for a good reason. That's exactly <laughs> it. This is Eric Abel, uh, Senior Project Manager, Government Affairs, Public Relations, NAM Foundation. Um, I've been at NAM for 22 years now. Wow. Um, maybe 23, can't remember. Um, uh, my first NAM show, I believe, was 1998. Hmm. Um, that first, I think that's the first Los Angeles show, um, uh, not counting a summer show. So, story time. Yeah. Yay. Um, uh, in general, I, 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 I don't know if you want all this, but uh, since I'm things. recording, it's my time. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, in general, you know, I worked seven years in the trade show sales department, and in that time. Uh, I, you know, since you asked me to do this uh, story time, um, I've been thinking about all these stories that have come sort of flooding back to me, you know. And um, in general, um, they are, it made me r- remember um, what a dream machine, you know, the NAM show is. Because in my role in trade show sales, I was assigned you know, maybe the 500 companies that were new mm-hmm. or newer. Mm-hmm. And Dominique had the 500 companies that were not as new. 
And so because of that, I got to uh, coach new companies coming into the show. And so in that capacity, you like really develop relationships with people. You know, you, you start to know their kids, you start to know their parents, you start to know their, their struggle, you know, uh, you start to understand, you know, what they're, that these, all these people have this sort of dream that they're following up on and, and, and trying to actually fulfill, you know, trying to make manifest. Um, so I was completely inspired listening. I mean, thinking back to all these stories of all these people, mostly musicians, that had this idea that would solve a problem that they encountered as a musician and, you know, patented an idea and then triple mortgaged their house to start to develop it and, <laughs> wow. and then worked for four or five years, often coming to me as the, the first contact at NAM and saying, I have this idea, I want to do this thing. And then we'd talk for two years or three years and I'd get them to come to the show and then they'd finally exhibit. And... And then, you know, that was sort of when everything sort of culminated into one of several experiences. And, you know, they ranged from just thrilled that they got great reception. They introduced this product that's been their baby for 10 years. They've been developing in their garage, you know. They've been, you know, having arguments with their spouse about why they should be spending all this time and money. And finally, they got validated. That was like most positive, all the way to the crushing realization that there was no market for what they were doing after all this time and money, and you know, and so you get to experience that with them really up close and personal, mm -hmm. and um, it just left me feeling such a gratitude for what we get to do, you know, because that's really sort of sacred space, you know. I know that maybe is overdramatic, but when you're talking about people that have a dream that roll the dice, all the dice, and and they go out there and would do that with us, they trusted us to help make that reality. And they trusted us to share the fact that in some cases, many cases, it didn't work. You know, that's pretty intimate. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it made me it reminded me of like how special this whole organization is because we're in that business basically constantly you know creating a pathway for someone to manifest their dream and sometimes dreams are scary and sometimes they're nightmares and that happens too mm -hmm. you know but the way that this organization never loses focus of that is pretty inspiring it's not a funny story but there are a lot of funny stories inside that that I really am not going to share because they're involved personal circumstances with mostly with our companies. But um, I will move on to some of the funnier stories or <laughs> not funny, but maybe memorable that mm -hmm. like really stuck out that I can I can share. Um, one uh, is the first time I met Joe Lamond. He always repeats this story, but from my perspective, it was. Um, uh, a little different. I was, uh, was my, maybe my second year here uh, working with Dominique in trade show sales and um, you know in that small department you wear a bunch of different hats which includes sort of um, concierge, concierge and receptionist and yeah. you know 
escort right <laughs> not not escort <laughs> i mean i did a lot of things for exhibitors but not that. <laughs> no. right but like so in this one case um i'm in the office and it was a smaller staff and so we're in this show office and and link says hey um eric there's this new guy and i want you to go and find him he's somewhere here he can't find the show office and so i you know it's show set up you know and we're busy 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 and um so i walk through the crowd and there's joe lamon and he's interviewing for the market development position and uh like we do with everybody that we meet um instead of telling him where it was it was impossible to find i just walked him over there and we had a conversation all the way there and and that was it and i had no idea that that one exchange would be with my future boss and, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a guy that's done so much for the industry and so much for me personally, you know, over the, that, the following 22 years mm. or 20 years that we've worked together. So uh, that experience uh, really jumped out at me. I'm talking about NAM show experiences mm. uh, under the category of, you know, respect everybody you meet you know? <laughs> <laughs> or you never know you know um and then as it uh turns out that the other stories that i have to share all surround um the nam drum circle <laughs> oh cool <laughs> and as a drummer myself it's uh, maybe a little um I don't know, a little embarrassing that all the like crazy stories are around this this uh, massive grouping of, you know, this organic grouping of drummers. <laughs> so like whatever, it, you know, it's like when you get a bunch of drummers together, like crazy stuff happens or something. <laughs> um, but we, uh, the one story that comes to mind, it was again, maybe my second year at NAMM. Um, and because I was a drummer, um, I was um, in, put in charge of this industry drum circle and um and so you know wanting to shake things up i decided let's let's make this um where all these drum companies uh, certainly they all want to get involved that turned out to be not as true as i thought it was but let's organize this drum parade in the middle of the trade show floor uh like uh an hour before the end of the show and we'll organize all these endorsed drummers to put on djembes and drums and stuff and walk through the show floor playing drums. And uh, so we did it um, and we organized it and all these guys, we marched through the, disrupted all this business. Everybody was <laughs> shaking their fists at us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we got all the way to the, the front of the convention center in Los Angeles and Remo had, uh, at the time they had this thing called the drum tower it was like a 20-foot structure that you climbed up this ladder and these large like like bass drumish looking cylinders hung down from this thing different um, lengths and somebody up on the top like you know you know this sort of Roman Titan, you know, it's like <laughs> boom, boom, playing all these big drums up on the top of this thing out in the front of the LA convention center. Anyway, we show up, um, nobody followed us. They were just, you know, we, we walked out of the convention center. It was me and 10 security guys and probably 20 drummer endorsed drummers, you know? And so we started the drum circle and this thing happened. It was amazing, you know, in, in, in retrospect, it was a, one of those sort of golden memories where you're standing there 
and you know brand new employee at NAM, and looking at this big drum tower and this guy up on the top of this drum tower uh, playing about five or six hundred attendees playing drums the la city skyline right behind us you know and about 10 homeless people, you know, I'm sure got like bucket drumming career starts at that <laughs> event. <laughs> so income streams. You know. I thought that was maybe my first, you know, NAM philanthropic effort. <laughs> equipping these, these homeless people with, you know, the skills and idea to start drum, bucket drumming careers. Um, anyway, so the drum tower was a, a you know, a, a sort of a golden memory. Other one is when I was, it was in Anaheim uh, a couple of years later, again, in charge of the drum circle. So I was always involved in that. And I'm playing drums um, in the circle and focused like a good, a good little boy, you know, at the facilitator, not looking around, just watching the, his direction. And uh, there's all this movement to my right and I'm realizing uh, something's going on and um, uh, look over and Stevie Wonder is like sitting right next to me. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you look just like Stevie Wonder. <laughs> and, uh, and his manager's there and he goes, it is Stevie Wonder, you know, something, something, something. And uh, we were all laughing and playing. And, so, and this, uh, that year we had decided, again, to sort of shake things up. We had the very bad idea to have like a rhythm section with the drum circle. So we had, of course, not a drummer, but we had, you know, 600 drummers and a bass player and a keyboard player. And we had them piped through the, the PA. And the keyboard player, great, great player, I don't remember who he was, but he saw Stevie Wonder and started playing Superstition. And, you know, within about 30 seconds, the whole group was playing, I guess, sort of playing, if you consider that everybody's doing their own thing on a hand drum. Um, but it was sort of playing with Stevie Wonder, you know? Wow. And I think cool. like probably a hundred drummers put that on their resume. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Nam show. <laughs> Played with Stevie. Gig, performed with Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure of it, actually. <laughs> it's not on my resume anymore, but it was for a long time. <laughs> but that was like a, you know, and then, and then another drum circle memory uh, I don't know why, you know, it, this really paints drummers in a bad light or, or some, the effect of drumming together or something, it makes people, um, I guess, not misbehave, but behave in real primal ways. <laughs> um, uh, this was uh, at the same set setting at, in Anaheim, and I was, again, in charge of the drum circle, and I had um, decided to add follow spots up on the balcony up above the drum circle and so there's you know probably six to seven hundred drummers just you know this this whole thing is like move this big mass of drummers the whole it's real sort of tribal um sort of like uh some sort of science fiction movie and these follow spots are shining on it it's just perfect just gorgeous and there's the hilton hotel right next to it and there are rooms sleeping rooms right above us maybe seven floors up but very, very visible, especially backlit, you know, so a room with lights on in the dark. Yes, you know where I'm going. So there was a couple with no clothes uh. dancing. 
I think there might have been a couch. I couldn't really tell um, because I didn't want to stare. Because I, was, <laughs> I was afraid that. <laughs> well, you, first of all, you couldn't really. You could, if you stared long enough, you could tell because of the angle of the backlight that they actually were naked. Um, but you couldn't really tell what they were standing on. But they were bouncing, jumping up and down. Um, uh, to the drum circle and dancing around and stuff, and I'm think all I could think of was number one, they're going to come crashing through the, the plate glass, you know, <laughs> which is probably not very likely. Um, so I'm imagining that. And number two, if the spotlight operator happens to see oh, no. what I see, and shines the spotlight up there, this whole thing is going to change. Like <laughs> oh. the whole dynamic of this event is going to change completely. That didn't happen. Neither of those things happened. So it has a happy ending. Um, I mean, and they, you know, they close the shades eventually. But uh, definitely a memorable only at the Nam show event. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I got a, uh, you know, there there are plenty of stories about uh, just interactions, mostly with exhibitors. I mean, I've worked for the Nam Foundation now for, you know, four. 12 years now with Mary Lurson and not as many trade show stories other than, you know, um, this event was planned and it came off and it was inspiring and I was motivated and, and, but you've already heard me say a little bit about that. So I won't bore you with that stuff, but, um, uh, just kind of funny little, uh, snippets, um, in, in the trade show world. Uh, I remember one time, uh, it, this under the category of like uh, the, the the thing that happens also at the NAM show, and that's this sort of dramatic culture um, collision <laughs> that happens, you know, <laughs> and um, and you know you, you can't really anticipate exactly what's going to happen, and it, until it's happening, and you realize, oh, okay, these these are this is a very diverse audience from all kinds of different world cultures and sensibilities. One was um, I was standing with the fire marshal because we would do these uh, show site inspections the night before show opening. And it's really high stakes because, um, of course, if you can't open the show, it's a bad thing. And almost anything can stop the show from opening, including like cardboard boxes behind a booth or all kinds of long list of things. And so as the, the sales representative you know, you're feeling tons of pressure because in those days we were also the police and the booth construction cops and we were everything. So it was all sort of high stakes. So I'm walking with the, the Dominique Agnew and the, the fire marshal and we turn a corner and there are these three guys, um, I think probably from a, I, I can't remember where they were from or what company they were with, but um, uh, they, Fortunately, spoke English and their uh, native tongue, and we're standing there smoking cigarettes, all of them. And it's a no smoking facility. I mean, really smoking cigarettes and cigarette butts all over the the ground. It was oh. before the carpet was on the ground. And uh, and uh, I said, uh, "Sir, you know this is a no smoking facility. You can't smoke here." And the guy next to him translated what I was talking to, you know, what I was saying. And the guy you know, says to me, like completely confident he said no 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 what do you know i'm smoking 
He said, what do you mean no smoking? I'm smoking. <laughs> what do you mean you can't smoke in here? I'm doing it. Look. <laughs> so, you don't understand. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you're the one who doesn't understand. <laughs> it's no problem. Watch. You want one? That was really awesome. And the, 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 the uh, fire marshal is just like speechless. And, you know, anyway, we finally convinced them what we had to do. And under that same sort of uh, idea, it, it wasn't at the same show, I don't think, but um, another story with, we were, uh, again, Dominique and I walking around with the fire marshal, and uh, we smell this uh, cigarette smoke and, and something else, and we're like, hmm, what is that? So we finally trace the smell to this booth. Um, never forget opening the door, and <laughs> on the ground were like three uh, butane cooking stoves they're cooking dinner because they have like 20 oh my gosh. booth booth uh, workers right and of course it's dinner time this is what we do we cook food so it's like c- cooking chicken and noodles and all this stuff and smoking like chain smoking all sitting around we open this and the fire marshals just like you know anyway we we, we uh informed them that they weren't allowed to do this for a bunch of different reasons and you know i'm th- i'm sure to this day they think we we're completely crazy like what we're cooking food that's what you do when you're ready to eat you cook and eat right and maybe smoke um inside yeah inside yeah it was just yeah it was like uh anyway uh lots of stories like that um uh and this is in that same sort of category another Again, you know, the exhibitors, especially, you know, brand new companies, they've never really marketed their stuff. They've never really shown their stuff. So, you know, they're they're where they are because they're really innovative and, and they have really, they can take something that looks basic and find, they think differently about it. So um, no exception with like booth construction. So uh, I'll never forget, you know, at, at our shows, I think still, I haven't been in trade show sales for a long time, but I, we present and we provide like this back drape, this drapery. Mm-hmm. And um, this company was showing lights and as before we had a separate light hall and uh, they decided there was way too much ambient light in this hall. So they took the back drape and stretched it all the way to the front. So it was like a canopy right over this thing. Uh, you know, of course, we had to let them know they couldn't do that, and uh, they were really, really furious. And so they said, "Okay." So they went out and bought. They went to a, I think a, uh, they were. It, it was in L.A. because they were right near the clothing district and textiles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they went out there and bought this really beautiful fabric, and created another canopy that we had to, you know, tell them to to tear down again. You know, so not really a funny story, but it was just one of those examples of. You know, they thought we were completely crazy. Like, what? You know, we're <laughs> why? Why is this not allowed? You know, mm-hmm. this whole idea that there was a, a you know, um, uh, these fire safety regulations mm-hmm. that we had to adhere to. Anyway, mm-hmm. anyway, um, how's that for some boring stories? That was those great. Yeah, those are yeah, awesome. You guys, I really love this podcast idea. It's really fun to hang out with uh, staff members. Oftentimes, we're in our own little cocoon here at NAM in the building working on various things for the show and for the history and marketing and all that. So it's really neat to have this chance to hang out with them individually and then hear stories we've never heard before, which is fantastic. So I would like to go next. 
My name is Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm the music historian here at NAM. I've been here since 1998, and uh, my first show was uh, 1998, uh, January. I remember it well. It was in Los Angeles. Uh, the story I'd like to tell you, though, is one related to the oral history program. As many of you probably know, this is my life. This is my baby. So um, I'm always looking for angles to add people to the collection. And early on at the NAM show in Los Angeles, I think it was 2000, we did an exhibit on the history of the synthesizer. And we invited all these people who were the engineers and important people to the development. Mr. Kakahashi from Roland was there, Bob Moog, um, Herb Deutsch. I'm trying to remember. I'm going to forget somebody. Um, Thomas Dolby was there as a very important player. I think Keith Emerson stopped by. It was really, really awesome. And from them, from that time, oh, Dave Smith, I got to include him, and, and Tom Oberheim and Roger Lynn. Um, but at that time, that was my introduction to a lot of those guys. So either at that show or shows right after that, I was able to connect with all of those uh, and interview them for the collection, which was fantastic all but one and that was Don Bukla and Don came over and he was showing off this new synthesizer that he had developed and there was lots of murmuring going around hey do you know who that is over there and one of them was Bob Moog hey you know who that is over there and so of course I did my research and realized this is an iconic figure in the music products industry and what he contributed to the development of the synthesizer way back in the early 60s, even before Bob Moog was doing what he was doing commercially, Don was doing this in his laboratory. It was a huge influence on nearly everybody who came after him. And he was just a guy with a fishing hat on and, you know, a funny little looked like fake leather vest and trousers that didn't look like they fit quite right. Just a kind of a nerdy engineer type, very approachable, you know, not too talkative, but very happy to talk to people who came up to him. And so I'm like, okay, this is great. We're going to interview this guy. So I sought out to do that and put him on my wish list. And I got his address and I sent him cards and I called him and I said, when can we arrange this? And he wasn't nearly as enthusiastic about it as I was. <laughs> so, and so the chase began. And uh, he never said no, which is my policy. If you don't say no, that's my opportunity because I'm nothing if not persistent. So I just kept sending little cards. And when I was in Berkeley a couple of times, I'd stop by knowing that this was probably not going to work out. But hey, just hanging out. And we had lunch together once and we were just talking about the history. And I was more and more convinced. I mean, he told me he met um, Leon Theremin, the guy who developed the theremin, which was the first electronics um, musical instrument, which Bob Moog said was basically where the synthesizing idea came from for him. So he had, Don had tons of history and I was just getting more and more excited about possible opportunities, which never came. So year after year, I'd see him at the show and he'd always say, it's a great idea, it's a great project, I'm really glad you're doing it, I'm really busy right now, oh, I gotta go, oh, this is happening, oh, that's happening, always an excuse, but always with a smile, you know, so never know. So I was on the 10th anniversary of my first time I asked him, I said, you know what? 
it's time to step this up. <laughs> so I went over to the market depart marketing department here at NAM, and back then we had printed directories with advertisements and you know the show map and all of that were in these uh, directories. And I said. Uh, you once said that we could have a, a full-page advertisement about the resource center and collecting our history, and and I wonder is that offer still stand? They said yes. I said, well, I have an idea. I would like to make a wanted poster with Don Buchla's name in the middle, like old-fashioned, you know, like uh, burnt edges and you know, black and white picture of him, and you know, say in big uh, letters, wanted Don Buchla for an interview. And whoever brings him over to the uh, recording room gets a free steak dinner for two. And I just put it in as a joke, and then I kind of forgot about it. At the beginning of the show, I went over to see him, as I always did, as he was setting up, hey, Don, how's it going? Is this our year? And he'd smile and say, oh, I hope so, and then go back to building his booth. So, And then I kind of just forgot about it. And every once in a while throughout the show, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'd hear somebody come up and say, man, I went over to try to get Don to come over because I wanted that steak dinner and (laughs) there was no going. So Sunday afternoon, I went over to his booth and I just sat down waiting for him to get done talking to somebody. That person walked away and he saw me sitting there and he came over and sat right next to me and he said, so you think it's time to do that interview? I said, absolutely, you ready now? He says, yep, let's go. So he got up, we started walking. I said, wow, this is great. I'm so glad it's happening. He says, I'm so sick and tired of people coming up to me. The whole entire show, he says, dozens and dozens of people, great friends, people who can afford their own steak dinners, and then poor people look like they barely could get into the show. Uh, I felt sorry for him. It's like, is this your only meal of the week? (laughs) He turned down everybody so that he could say, let's just get it over with. So the interview was rather short. It w- it's not a long one. I think maybe a half an hour. And it's a little cat and mouse. You know, he's kind of playing with me a little bit. Um, but I was loving it. It was great. He talked about everything I was hoping he'd talk about. Maybe not as much detail, but it was great. And at the end, I says, okay, well, hey, I'll meet you over at the booth because now it was closing time of Sunday. You're going to take your booth down. I'll run over to Morton's. I'll get a gift card. I'll meet you back. He goes, you're going where? I says, to get the gift card, you're the one who, you're the winner. You brought yourself over here. He said, no, I want to have steak dinner with you. I think you should be the one I have dinner with. I was mm, like, that's nice. Oh, Tom <laughs> Bukla, you're my friend. <laughs> I love it. What a happy ending to your great, what is it, a 10 year quest to get him? 11. 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> My name is Cosby Chalicombe. I'm the director of membership with NAM, and I've been here for eight years. And my first NAM show was in 2012. And one of the stories that I that I like to recall about the NAM show is uh, Nathan East had came into the member center, and he had had his hoverboard, <laughs> and um, he needed somewhere to store his hoverboard. And so he asked me, you know, can I can I keep it here? And I said, absolutely. And I said. But first, I'm a little curious about this hoverboard. That's it was hoverboards that just came out, and I was like, "How does this work?" And he said, "Oh, when I come back, I will be giving you a hoverboard lesson." And I was like, <laughs> "Okay." So he came back a couple hours later, and here's Nathan East and I in the member center. He's holding my hand because I had no balance on the hoverboard at all. He's holding my hand, and I'm 
inching along in the hoverboard <laughs> trying to move and he let go of my hand and he's like you can do it you can do it so that's one of my favorite stories oh. is Nathan East uh, teaching me how to ride his hoverboard at the NAMM please show please tell me there's pictures of that there is there's, oh. some, in my, there's oh. some in my office okay cool oh yes that should be yes. part of the NAMM archives right. yeah, absolutely <laughs> So are you like a pro now? Do you hoverboard all the time? No, I'm awful. <laughs> I was absolutely It's not easy, awful. is it? It's tough. It's really, really hard. Yeah. And I, right then and there, I said, okay, I'm not going to spend the money and get myself one. He was just, you know, smooth and yeah. just going, going. I got on, I'm all wobbly and <laughs> yeah. falling down and yeah, breaking a sweat. <laughs> it was challenging. Well, and they make them now where you can control them with both feet. So yeah. there's two separate. So now, like, not only do you have to worry about balance, which... Don't yeah. add speed to my movement because <laughs> right. I'm not exactly graceful. And now I have to like figure out how I can push my toe down to this angle and still not fall and move this fast. Like what? Yes. Oh my gosh. It was a um, it was a lot of ch- big challenge. Ugh. I didn't step up to it. I didn't spend the money and buy myself one. <laughs> <laughs> so was this your first show? Um, that was probably the twenty. 20- I think maybe 2015 show on that. My first show, if I could tell one more other story. So my first show was uh, 2012 and I had um, come to work for NAMM. I'd worked for NAMM for I think three months and people were telling me, you know, the NAMM show is a really big uh, NAMM, you know, it's a really big trade show. And I'd been in the um, association industry and, and been to a lot of trade shows, but I didn't know that much about the NAMM show. And I remember walking upstairs and I was upstairs on the second floor and it, we had just opened the show floor and I looked down over the balcony and down and just saw these sea of people and I was like oh yeah nope <laughs> not in Kansas anymore <laughs> hey guys my name's Elizabeth and I am the NAM public relations coordinator formerly the NAM archivist and oral history coordinator and OG co-host of this podcast. Yay. And <laughs> I'm back. <Uh-oh. laughs> um, you just lost a ton of listeners. Um, and I got hired at NAM in the summer of 2016, so I'm just past my three years, with my first show being the NAM show, the big one in Anaheim in January 2017. And that's not where my favorite memory comes from. My favorite memory comes from the following NAM show, the summer show of 2017, and my first time to Nashville. And I think both Dan and Mike know exactly what story I'm going to tell. <laughs> Yay! <Yep. laughs> One of my favorite stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. And so feel free to interject, guys, as we go through, because I feel like we collectively tell this story better than <laughs> me single-handedly. Um, so we went to Nashville, and one of it was my first time in Nashville in general. And I think Mike, was this your first trip to yeah. Nashville too? Or? Yeah, this is my okay. first Nashville show too. Yeah. So Dan took it upon himself to be our official Nashville guide, and one of the stops included uh, the Musicians Hall of Fame down there in Nashville, which is a phenomenal museum. Uh, highly recommend it to anyone who's been to the city before but hasn't checked it out or. If you're heading to Nashville for the first time, put it on your bucket list. It is the coolest place. Yeah, no doubt. And yeah, and so Dan had been telling us leading up to go, this Hall of Fame visit about how he's always wanted to meet the specific studio musician. He's never been able to find him, and 
he knew that the musician, the saxophone player, he was a, what, a, a flautist as yes. well? He plays mm-hmm. a flute, right? Right. Um, he had an exhibit at the Hall of Fame. So, of course, while we're going anyways to check out the space, we're going to go specifically to look at this exhibit. And the whole week leading up to it, we're hearing about how, oh, I just want to meet this guy, I just want to meet this guy, I just want to meet this guy. And we're there, we're checking out the space. Dan has already talked the ear off of the curator about how he's always wanted to meet this particular gentleman. And it's we're standing in front of Jim Horn's exhibit of, what, the Wrecking Crew. Right. He was on, like, a bunch of Beach Boy stuff. That's right, right, guys? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, what do they have in there? They had a, did they have a saxophone? This flute. Yeah, it was this flute, His right? Flute. From Can yeah. Heat. Yeah. Going up. Oh, uh, going up country. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. So we're sitting there, and the curator is kind of like, "Oh, hold on, I'll be right back. There's someone I want you guys to meet." And so the three of us are geeking out on the display and looking at different stuff and marveling. And of course, Dan's going, "I've interviewed him. I've interviewed him." <laughs> <laughs> and curator walks back up and who is at this same museum with us jim horn <laughs> <laughs> who i thought guys. must have been in la i did not think at all he was living in nashville so that was a complete right. shock yeah not only in the same city happens to be at the same museum like this curator had no idea that that's like was dan's dream interviewee <laughs> lately and we hadn't t- talked to him about Jim Horn until we got to the Musicians Hall of Fame. So there's no like planning this. This was fate, ultimate fate. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Dan starts like, oh, hi, I'm Dan from NAM, his whole spiel. And so Mike and I look at each other, communicate telepathically like we have the ability to do, and totally scam this director away from Dan and Jim Horn. <laughs> like, I think that was oh, my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, can you show us uh, Jimi Hendrix restrung bass? We'd really love to see it. Just <laughs> anything to get this curator away from Jim Horn and Dan, because we know what Dan's going to do. He would have done it if the curator was standing right there anyways. But well, it helped that he smooth. left, that's for sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Dan <laughs> chats him up, and I'll, I think Dan should finish this part because you know i wasn't present for the conversation well my favorite part was i walked to him i said jim horn i'm dan from nam i've always wanted to interview you and he says well hi dan i'm jim horn i've always wanted to go to the nam show i said hmm (laughs) i think we can get that arranged (laughs) so the very next morning he was our first interview he came loved the show we got him badges and oh my gosh i'm still smiling about it that was such an amazing event what a great story Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I think of Jim Horn often. He was such an incredibly nice guy. You know, anytime uh, I have a chance to talk with Dan and Mike and someone brings up uh, curry, I think of Jim Horn because he makes, apparently he makes the best curry, you know. We've yet to try it, though. this half of the world. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just, it was mind-blowing. Like, how did the stars align Mm. to have this, you know, ultimate talent, this fantastic musician just crossed paths with us the right time right place it's just that's that seems like the epitome of a lot of people's nam show experience right you're walking the trade show floor you've always wanted to meet this person and oh my gosh there they are or you haven't seen this colleague in 30 years and you were just thinking about them the other day wondering how they're doing and you see them at the booth you're walking past yeah i mean that's kind of the sentiment you hear from nam show time and time again so it was neat for me being my first summer show to 
have that happen, have that moment happen and kind of get it to some degree, especially not coming from the industry, like experience what all of our colleagues, all of the industry people experience every year. It was just, you know, that'll be something I tell that story for a long time. Hmm. So Well said. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, great story. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you guys for letting me tell it. Thanks for having me. I miss recording. I miss uh, doing all this stuff with you guys, and I know this podcast will episode will turn out to be awesome with everybody's name show memories. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, bye. 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 Hey, everybody. I'm Bill Kilpatrick, and I'm with the Museum of Making Music. I am the education manager of the Museum of Making Music. Awesome. Oh, I thought that was going to get a laugh from you. (laughs) (laughs) Now it did. There you go. (laughs) Which means bringing in thousands of school kids every year and managing the volunteer program and setting up family events. Important stuff. Very important, yeah. Huge part of our mission. And I started uh, here actually as a volunteer in 2010. So I've been here a little over nine years. Uh, Almost seven years on staff now. Wow. Uh, This October will be seven years. Mm. I never held a job for seven years Uh anywhere. (laughs) And uh, my first NAMM show, that was 2013, right after I came on board staff. I call the NAMM show Toys Are Us on Steroids for Musicians. (laughs) Got through that one. There you go. And uh, every year you go, as we all know, we see hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people, well Mm. over 100,000 in the the convention center there. So uh, I think most everybody who goes to the show knows that Stevie Wonder is pretty much a staple there every year. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the first time I witnessed the wonder phenomenon, (laughs) as you might call it, as you look out, you see the floor is wall-to-wall people. And all of a sudden, there's this large circle that shows up in the center of that wall-to-wall people. The circle is pretty much empty in the middle, except for maybe one or two people. When you see it from a distance, you say, well, what the heck is that? And as it gets closer, of course, the circle is lined by people walking very slowly, making their way through this mass of humanity, and in the center of that circle is Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, down at the NAM, uh, I'm sorry, the museum booth in 2013, and we were just inside Hall E. To the right of us was this gentleman who had an instrument called the Harpeggi. Oh, yeah. If you're not familiar with it, look it up, H-A-R-P-E-J-J-I. Uh, and it's sort of a hybrid, uh, you play it like a piano, you play it by tapping, but it's uh, guitar strings that you're tapping. There's uh, from 12 to 18 guitar strings, and they're stretched across a large rectangular block of wood. Hmm. Harpeggi. Uh, the name is sort of harp and arpeggio, kind of roll together. So I was working our booth, and the gentleman who had designed this instrument was playing it and having a good old time, and all of a sudden, here comes the circle (laughs) in through the doors right and stevie was kind of he wasn't running he wasn't in a big hurry but you saw he was making a beeline sort of toward this harpeggi instrument because it was brand new to him uh, and the fellow playing the harpeggi all of a sudden, all of a sudden started going, bum 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 bum. So now Stevie started running, <laughs> and uh, the circle made its way over to the harpeggi. And this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Uh, the guy was like 
floored and stevie came up and you know, put his hands on as he does he kind of feels his way around to get comfortable with the interface he's playing and it started tapping some strings and started playing some tunes making a little music and he turns to this fellow he says uh, i'm gonna fly out to my place for the weekend you're gonna bring the arpeggi and you're gonna show me how to how to play this instrument and the guy said <laughs> who says no to that yeah right <laughs> oh, wow. so wow. that happened he went out for whenever that weekend was somewhere 2013 2014 and the coolest thing now is if you go on youtube just type in stevie wonder harpeggi there's a lot of videos of him playing the instrument not only playing it but really talking about it and extolling the virtues of of this instrument and i think that's just such a wonderful unexpected success story for the gentleman that uh, that created this instrument and you got to witness that firsthand how cool right there right there in the inside of holly <laughs> extremely wow. cool yeah so great story that's my that's my first like wow impression of nam and it's only gotten better from there that's awesome mm -hmm. that was good that was a good one wow. any other stories come to mind <clears throat> Well, I think everybody knows this one. I didn't witness this, but I certainly heard about it, and it's, it's another Stevie Wonder story. I think this is about a year, maybe two years ago. There was a young guy, maybe 21 years old, playing solo guitar at the Marriott stage, I think it was. Right, yeah, right, you know right by the bar, yep. yeah. Yeah, So he was starting to play one of Stevie's tunes, and he was struggling with the lyrics. He kind of blanked uh, all of a sudden on the lyrics. And this fellow steps up on stage and says, here, I think I can help you with this. And it was Stevie. <laughs> Stevie took off singing the song, and this kid was just, you know, in heaven, obviously. That, I think, probably went to the top of his resume immediately. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. Uh, and uh, every time I hear Stevie Wonder sing, my thought is, this guy outsings Stevie Wonder, and mm. he is Stevie Wonder, yeah. right? <laughs> the the no guy's doubt. just got a bag of soul that is infinite. Uh, wow. and. Such a great presence at the show, you know, a yeah. wonderful guy, yeah. Hi, my name is Betty Haywood, and I am NAM's Director of International Affairs. I've been working with NAM for 14 years now, and I believe 2019 was my 18th NAM show. Wow. Yes, I think it's 18. Um, I can't really remember. Um, once you've been to 15, <laughs> sort of, you probably only remember the next one is that you remember your 30th or something. But um, I have met people in my work that have actually been to 50 or 55 NAM shows, um, such as some of some of our Italian members, for example. And that just seems incredible, mm. but it's true. It's very, very interesting. Um, in my position as uh, Director of International Affairs, uh, my role is to work with the NAM team in other departments to increase international attendance at the NAM shows. Um, that's um, uh, mainly on the attendee side, but a little bit also on the exhibitor side, um, as well as carry NAM's uh, circle of benefits um, into markets outside of the United States. Um, as part of that, we have a partnership um, with the organizers of the Music China Show, where NAM provides NAMU professional development courses. Um, in addition, we do a uh, joint venture with Messe Frankfurt in Russia, where we organize NAM Music Messe Russia and Polite and Sound NAM Russia. Um, and the third sort of big um, block of uh, responsibility that, that, that I'm in charge of or I'm charged with is working with association partners around the world to um, 
work on advocacy for music education and to promote the benefits of music making and working, for example, with the British um, Association, the Music Industries Association of the UK, and the German associations, the French associations, and so on. So to work with our partners to assist them in their advocacy work. So do you have any particular favorite memories of an AM show? Um, I've got one. Now that now that I think of it, I have a, a, a an interesting um, anecdote to tell. I think it was my second NAM show, or the first, well, one of the first or the second, where I was given a suite by somebody on the NAM show floor, and I should remember who that was, but I will not mention any names. <laughs> and it turns out that it was one of those blue suites. And I walked along the corridor then to go from one of the show offices, I think, to the executive office where Joe Lamont's office at the NAM show. And up comes Carlos Santana and his posse. <laughs> and I'm going like everybody at the NAM show. I'm going, oh, my God, it's Carlos Santana. <laughs> so I give him a big smile, and he gives me this weird look. And I thought, so what the heck is wrong with him? Now, it turns out that um, then I went into the into the, the executive office or so and and um, somebody looked at me and said, "Do you know your mouth is completely blue?" <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was giving Carlos Santana this this grin with a mouth the color of the Cookie Monster. Or something. So that that was that was a really weird um, uh, uh, anecdote. I now realize, but that was fun. But um, I think one of my first, the other really early anecdote was I come from a commercial trade show organizer um, uh, originally where I worked for many, many years um, and then joining NAM. And I think the, 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 the difference that, that people have when they walk onto the show floor and as an even as an observer who was not in the industry, I think it was very um, obvious to feel that, that when they walk into the NAM show, our members, the people that attended really have the feeling this is their show, that they own this show. And um, I think that comes across um, when you when you observe people of how they enter the show floor and how they interact with each other and so on. And I thought that was a very mm. interesting observation for me to make, um, as I said, coming from a commercial organizer. Well said. And I think this goes back to, um, I think this goes back to, you know, that we are a not-for-profit member um, uh, owned organization. Um, uh, one of the um, group of people that we assemble at the NAM show that we invite is always sort of the leading opinion um, opinion leaders, I should say, or researchers and um, professionals and teachers and in the music education sector. And um, the um, professor Liane Henschke, who was at that time president of ISME, um, the International Society for Music Education, she mentioned um, that she thought the big difference um, when she comes to the NAM show was that the show has a heart. Hmm. And hmm. I think that's a good, it's a good summary. The thing that always really pleases me about the NAM show, um, and this is me talking with my um, international affairs hat on, um, is that it feels like a um, great family reunion, but not just a family reunion of one family, but a family reunion of a, a massive family that lives in 130 countries and comes from all over the world together in Anaheim for the four days. The level of internationality is um, enormous. Um, and every year um, we lose some countries, we gain some countries, but it really is 
excellent to see and, and it makes us uh, makes us at NAM feel very grateful uh, to see that people are coming from anywhere from Azerbaijan to Zambia to come to the show and, and see the latest offerings of our exhibitors. So it's very gratifying for us and we're very grateful. I am Joe Lamond. I work down the hall with Robin Muller um, in the executive office. And I, as of last week, which was August 24th, I just had my 21st anniversary here. Wow. wow. The first two and a half years, plus or minus, I was in market development. I was director of market development. And then at the board meeting in March of 2001, I was named the heir to Larry Lincoln. The rest, as they say. History, but we're here to talk about the show. Obviously, being here at NAM for 21 years, there's just endless stories because every year there's so many. So, I was just trying to think of the early years. Um, when I worked at Guitar Drum and Guitar City, Andy Penns, um, I started there in March of, of 1982. And the uh, as that year was coming into 1983, the owner, as a um, kind of a, a present to um, another worker and I, he allowed us to go to the NAMM show. So my first show was January of 1983. Wow. Wow. Uh, Scott Cameron, who still works for DW, he's a rep, uh, lives up north, and I flew down to, uh, and that's when the uh, airport in Orange County was literally, you walked off the plane <laughs> onto the sidewalk, basically. <laughs> there was no real airport. It was just basically like a, a glorified bus station, so that was kind of always interesting. Um, I think I was trying to be hip and cool and wore my Zildjian jacket. Uh, I wanted to look like I, I belonged. And, and I, you know, again, I've said it many times, but my first memory of actually walking into the show floor, which was, you know, the old, probably two iterations before the hall we have now, it was basically two halls and the arena was I had just never seen anything so big in my life mm. and uh, overwhelmed at the um, scale of it and feeling, you know, from little store in Sacramento, pretty insignificant. And I, that, that always stuck with me and, and it shaped a lot of how we still try and make the, uh, make the entrance and the, you know, the, the overall experience something where you feel like it's your place, it's mm. your clubhouse. Because um, I know the feeling if you're from a, you know, you're young from a small store, just breaking into the business, it can be pretty intimidating. And that was so. In that first year in particular, I remember, um, you know, in some of the booths meeting or seeing some of my heroes, um, Tom Schultz from Boston was, mm -hmm. I mean, at that time, you didn't get much bigger than the band Boston. And here he was in a little 10 by 10 booth showing off his Rockman, <laughs> little, you know, one of the guitar effects, little probably like a little Walkman looking thing, but it was uh, amazing. I was like, That's Tom Schultz. And I remember walking to another booth and seeing uh, Phil Earhart, the drummer for Kansas, and just being a huge Kansas fan and just having that kind of proximity with these type of people was, I wasn't familiar with that. And it was just such a, a moment to, to, to see. And, and, and what I remember in particular of the industry people uh, was meeting Roy Burns. And uh, I had met Roy Burns at a clinic at the store not too long before that. So when I saw Roy, I locked onto him 
just in the absolute hope he would remember me because <laughs> he had just done a clinic for Aquarian at our store. <clears throat> Thankfully, I mean, he made me feel, and Scott Cameron, he made us both feel so welcome. Hmm. And that's that was Roy's gift, you know. Um, made us, you know, he had a booth. We walked in. He greeted us by name and just made us feel really good. So I think the, um, the early first show in particular cemented the fact that I was um, – uh, really hooked on the on the industry itself, and and uh, slowly, you know, the shows after that felt more and more like we belonged. But those were the early years. I think it's just um, I always think it's important for us to keep in mind that uh, each year there's a lot of people just like Joe and Scott who mm. is their first show and they're young and they're maybe from a small store in a small town. And uh, you never know where they'll end up, so you got to be nice to them, <laughs> uh, and you want them to just belong and say that this is your clubhouse. So, so the mid mid years. I mean, I think um, I don't remember exactly the first year I went with Skips. Um, there was one year in particular where I was already an employee at Skips, but I was on a Todd Rundgren tour um, that year that just happened to be in January. Start off right up the first of the year. They would run for six to eight weeks, and um, so I and Skip was kind enough to let me take those leaves of absences and go on tour. And we just happened to be playing Anaheim during the NAMM show, and it's the Circle Star Theater, I believe. It's in Anaheim, and so it was a neat show for us because all the friends of Todd came over and watched the show. And I think I had a um, the pr- drummer was Prairie Prince, and I think he had broken one of his hi hat cymbals, so. Um, I don't think it was Eric who works here who was at Peisty at the time. I think it was someone else from Peisty who actually brought over a replacement symbol. <laughs> and I said, I got a broken hi-hat symbol. Can you bring one over? And, and then, you know, so going, I just popped over the show at that point, not as a Skips employee, but as a guy on tour at that point. So that was kind of an interesting one. Uh, again, the, the chances of us playing Anaheim during the NAMM show are probably hard to calculate, but it was a lot of fun. And the show was fun because a lot of the artists came over to see Todd. Um, Going there with Skips was interesting because, I mean, like a lot of our members still, we're so lucky, and you know, we don't have to have roommates. If you're a retailer, you probably have roommates. <laughs> Multiple. And, you know, and that's just the way it is. And I roomed with Skip, and you know, because the meetings would go on long after we got back to the room and what we'd seen and what, what kind of buys we we're trying to make. But um, it was kind of fun. Those were those were great moments bunking up with, with Skip. And, and looking back on it, um, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I do now when I think about it, uh, how rare that was that time. Um, at the moment, I was basically just worried about sleeping uh, because he does have a... Um, just for the record, it just I'm sure this affects a lot of people. He's not the only one, but yeah, he does snore. <laughs> Quite loudly. <laughs> vigorously was the word. I think I used the word. Well, he does everything vigorously. I mean, I think that's just the way he is. So, um, so but it, uh, those were fun. Uh, you know, seeing when we would win awards, there was various things around the show where Skips would win an awards. And, and I remember, you know, after probably one of Vinny Testa's events, and we won several awards. And I think one of the things I remember was with the other Skips employees, there was probably eight or ten of us, walking into an event after having that received all these awards, just feeling like I was on a team, mm-hmm. feeling like I was in a you know part of something really special. And, and we walked in, walking off the ground. I think it was going into an Elisa's party or something, but we really felt cool. <laughs> you know, that's the camaraderie of a music store, of all your friends. And you know, um, when you're at NAM, and you know, the store really felt like like a team. And it was kind of, that was a, a special feeling. Um, seeing bands, that was always a huge thing. I mean, remember Spinal Tap played, mm. I think it was a Shure party. 
And I think one of the funnest things about that was, I mean, I was a huge, spin- I am a huge Spinal Tap fan, but when they came out and did, did Big Bottoms, which <laughs> for you uh, who are the Tap fans out there know exactly what I'm talking about, it tends to have lots of bass players. Well, this one had uh, an extra bass player, but he was playing a tuba, and it was Will Lee from the David Letterman Band. And so he added an extra special bass part on the tuba. And it was just hilarious. I mean, you know, those things you just can't repeat. They're so special. And then later that night, in the Hilton, getting into the elevator, there was Will Lee. And I just said, man, that you just made my life watching you play tuba <laughs> on big bottoms. <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> you know, just really kind of a fun moment. It just those are the sk- those are the moments that now. Nah, there's moments like that. You just you know, um, meeting again the, the giants like Jim Marshall. You know, I remember uh, he was always very approachable in the booth. Um, just always had his coveralls on. I don't know if you remember Jim's outfit at the shows. He basically looked like a working man. He did not wear a suit and tie that I remember. And it was basically like a like a pilot's jumpsuit or something. And the reason I remember that is because one time I actually was in the men's room. I look over and there's Jim Marshall wrestling with his flight suit to try and go to the bathroom. <laughs> hey, that's Jim Marshall. Uh, but, you know, those kind of these things that are random yet just so memorable. They, I mean, obviously, all these years later, they stuck with me. Mm. Um, and then the NAM years, right? So then all of a sudden I switch teams and now I come over on the NAM side as a staffer. And, uh, and that sets up a whole different view of the show. When you go as a retailer, you see the show in one certain way. Uh, but if you go as an exhibitor, you see it a certain way. Going as an AM staffer, you see the whole thing. Mm. You see it, it's an entirety. You see it from, you know, conception on a you know a piece of paper on the wall in the trade show sales office to execution load in. And uh, so that was always kind of a, a fun thing for me to get behind the curtain and see it the way I'd never seen it before. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, coming into the CEO role. And and the the things I remember about that are very operational. A lot of the things about, you know, opening on time, make sure the carpet's down, you know, make sure that nothing really, uh, uh, that just, you're thinking like a, at that point, you're almost like a hotel operator or a, or a concert promoter, basically. The show has to start on time. It's all about op, you know, operations at that point. And then somewhere along the line, we started doing a lot more fun things like Breakfast of Champions, where I got put in and started doing extra side jobs, you know, beyond making sure the show went well. Um, and we all did. We all picked up a whole bunch of extra work to make it make the show very special. Um, but, you know, some of those guests on uh, Breakfast of Champions, many of them were great industry luminaries sharing their um, their thoughts. Um, you know, Hartley PV, uh, just, you know, God, I mean, just think of, if you look back on the list of who's been on mm-hmm. Breakfast of Champions, it's about, you know, um, you know Bob Zildjian and, and Vic Firth arguing like the two Muppets in the balcony. <laughs> you know, that's literally how Vic said, you know, as I started asking him a question, he goes, wait a second, you guys familiar with the Muppet show? You know those two grumpy old men in the balcony? That's us, you know. Um, but guys like Gene Simmons. And uh, did you, have you ever seen the footage of that? Oh, yeah. So Gene Simmons was a guest. And, and these were a lot of these were spontaneous. Like you find out someone's going to be coming and he wanted to film his show there. He had a, a reality show. And someone thought it'd be a good idea to have him come on and talk about business. He's a very successful businessman. And um, like a lot of those things, as Ken Wilson would say, Joe, that's where things can go horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember sitting with Gene in the green room beforehand. I'd never met him, he'd never met me. 
of course, a huge Kiss fan and grew up with all that. But I'd known enough about him to know his style could be antagonistic. And um, sometimes I'd seen where he actually singles someone out in the audience and picks on them. That some of those people, you know, how they yeah. get that thing going, like a almost like a bully in a way, you know. And I and I just remember saying to him, look, you know, no one knows you're coming out. That's how Breakfast of Champions works. Everyone's a surprise, so it's no big deal if this happens or not. Quite frankly, I think you're a great businessman. I think you'd have a lot to offer to our members out there. You know, branding and everything you've done to be successful in business. But these are my members. These are my friends. These are my family. And we're not going to go out there if you're going to pick on them. If you're going to be mean to those people, if you're going to try and, you know, then we just, then we shouldn't do it. With all due respect, we just shouldn't do it. And he, all right. (laughs) (laughs) He agreed. And and we said, okay, so we ended up having a good session. It still got out of hand. uh, But he was, I thought he was, he didn't go there where I could just see him, you know, these guys who are in Breakfast of Champions sitting Mm, up front. Right. You could just see him maybe just latching on to someone who he perceived as weak Mm -hmm. and having the, you know, having their lunch to make himself look better. So He had a classic line there. Yeah, which one? (laughs) (laughs) I want to know which one came to your mind. Well, I mean, you know, when he first initially, you know, stood up and you know, basically took over the whole stage by saying, <laughs> look at my behind. Don't I have a nice behind? <laughs> That's how his, basically his introduction to the crowd. That. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and then, uh, you know, he talked about branding. He did talk about marketing and he talked about the um, music stores. His experience was, you know, he made some comment that, um, you know, you, you the salespeople we hire, you know, he said, you hire gray-haired, ponytailed guys who used to roadie for fog hat, you know? <laughs> Oh, yeah, they're going to line up around the block for that. He said, you need to hire some hot chicks. (laughs) And that led into a whole different story because that resulted in some letters to the editor about his misogyny. And and next thing, I ended up meeting some great music stories because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you never know where where things will lead you. Um, Second job. So one time, a couple years ago, there was a Bonzo Bash, the tribute to John Bonham. And um, I got to play drums on Fool in the Rain, and that was a highlight because the bands at, who play this Bonzo Bash are like the best players. And to be able to sit in with that band and play the song on a big stage, I can't remember what theater it was down the street, uh, that was a highlight too. And just, but you know, you're literally going from one event, um, taking off the tie jacket, putting on a t-shirt, rocking out for like six minutes, and then going back and then you know, going to some reception. Uh, where they're passing trays of hors d'oeuvres around. <laughs> You're trying to get the sweat off your... Uh, oh, that was fun. So the idea of going back and forth in roles was always, mm. always kind of fun. Um, the concerts, right? Michael McDonald, Elton John, um, you know, a little Marriott thing with Yamaha and Tony Bennett comes out and does a set. Mm. Um, the thing about the Michael Mc, or the Elton John one, you guys don't remember that probably because before he was, I think it was 03, was it was our first sh- uh, shot at trying to produce a large concert with Yamaha. I mean, using an, a stadium, basically. Before that, we had done a theater with Michael McDonald. And other than that, you're doing hotel ballrooms. So all of a sudden, we're in business to try and take this Arrowhead Pond. And I think capacity was something like 14,000 when you do it in, in a 270, they call it, when you have the stage on one end. We don't know anything about that. I mean, so... You know, the challenge was how do we sell or give 14,000 tickets away during the NAMM show when there's already so many things going on to compete for time, even though it was an unbelievable lineup, you know. Um, 
So I just the one memory I have of that is we even moved the chairman's reception down to the parking lot of the Arrowhead Pond and put up a big tent and you know the 800 people or so who would normally gone to the reception were there and it was wonderful and um who was a piano player we had a great piano player from yamaha just you know playing background music um but it was just one of those you know wonderful moments where there's this famous piano player and um about 7 30 ish 7 35 uh chris Giro and i and terry lewis someone came and said okay time to go back and take some pictures and meanwhile, I'm just wondering how are we, are we going to fill it? Are people going to show up? And so in the, as you're walking, you know, you're greeting everybody inside the chairman's reception. You're putting on a really good face while inside you're kind of worried about what's happening, you know. And uh, we got inside the, inside the arena and we're walking down the steps to go back to the backstage. And I'm looking around and it's empty. It's empty. And it's about now about 20 to 8. Show's supposed to start at 8. And I'm just, Chris and I are looking at each other like, this isn't going to work. I mean, he's not going to come out. Elton won't come out if it's empty. He's like, How, we're all dead. We are, our careers have just been, you know, but we're just not, we'll never overcome this. So we go backstage, we take our pictures, and there's a bunch of photos from that night still that I look at and go, oh, I'm smiling. On the inside, I'm thinking about, well, I can drive a cab. Um, <laughs> play you know, drums, okay. I mean, I might be able to, you know, go back and play weddings again in bar mitzvahs because it was so, I mean, it was horrible, just horrible, humiliating and embarrassing. And so we look, so we take our pictures about 8.05 now and we got to hold doors, hold doors. And then I heard some, you know, radio talk. The Catella is just jammed. They're running buses back and forth. They can't get people down fast enough. There's a traffic jam moving people from the convention center down to the arena. I'm going, okay, maybe they're just not here yet. You know, So we hold at 8.30 and people were starting to come in and maybe 8.35 or so, the, the band comes out and starts the first song and the lights come up and it was full. Wow. And I just remember for that moment, I had, must have held my breath for about 45 minutes. <laughs> and at that moment, breathing again, going, it's going to be all right. We live. <laughs> I choose life. <laughs> and it was just because people were trying to get there mm-hmm. and they were out in the you know eating in the in the foyer of the of the arena and all that and so when it came time to start everybody got to their seats and except maybe just for the top seats but otherwise it was full and very respectable and we just thought okay, we got a show. But um, you know, there's so many moments at the Nam show where you just you take a risk and you don't know if it's going to work. And you you know you hope for the best, and those moments just before you're just dying. First breakfast of champions. So you know Ken Wilson has this idea. The morning sessions were very small. We never had anything like that. They were just you know a topic in the little room in a in a Hilton, and twenty or thirty people might show up. And he had this idea of um, let's do a morning session, a keynote, um, and the way we'll get people there is we'll give them breakfast. And you can imagine how that went over first. What we're just going to buy everybody breakfast? Okay, well, that sounds good to me. So, and it was at the Marriott, the first one. And we think, how many people come up? I think maybe 100 people will come or 200. He goes, yeah, I think we should seat it for like 300 or 400. And I go, that's crazy. And I remember the Wednesday night, because this was a Thursday morning, and I wasn't hosting them. I think Alan Friedman did the first one. And uh, we were standing in the back of the room, and the hotel staff are bringing in extra chairs because it was full. Huh. And we're just looking like, God darn it. 
it worked. <laughs> Free food. <laughs> and that was the lesson that we took home. You know, if you, yeah, it's a good topic. It was a great setup, but you've got to give them some incentive. And Ken's wisdom was simple. Um, everybody needs to eat, and yet they say they don't have time for the education because they're too busy at the show floor. Do both. Feed them breakfast while you're giving them a session. Hmm. You've just given them an hour extra in the day, and it was brilliant, and we still do it to this day. But that first morning going, this ain't going to work. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and then seeing them bring extra chairs, and I go, ah. So those kind of moments, I, I think a lot about it now, where you try something, you don't know if it's going to work. I mean, you think about a product cycle that shows once a year. You get to iterate a improvement or a, uh, a thing you want to change. You can't like try it three times a day or uh, every month or every quarter. You have one time a year to get it right. And if it doesn't work, you have to think about it till you get to think about it till next year <laughs> about how it didn't work. So you don't have that. It's not the cycle is so, you know, it's like the gestation period of an elephant almost. You know? <laughs> just just takes a while. So these ideas have to work, you know. So those are you know, those are some of the, the things I remember, the stress and then the ah, it's working. So but Well, you know, um one of my favorite elements of the products industry is that we honor each other in ways all throughout the year and um, I was always so enamored with that moment of the Breakfast of Champions when you had Henry Steinway come out mm -hmm. and everybody was on their feet. It was their chance to say thank you to this giant in the industry. And he was close to 90, if not over. Yep. It was yep. a very special moment, I thought. It's funny when you go into that mode, these are people that you know or you just know of. Some of them, you know, you know more than others, but you walk out on that stage with them and you're simply thinking one thing. Can we leave the audience with a a tip, a thought, a a some sort of piece of of guidance or wisdom that will help them be more successful, hmm. either in their business or in their life? And I think, you know, that session in particular was called the theme was my favorite mistake. Hmm. And so I was asking everybody when they really blew it <laughs> and what they learned from it and how they recover from it. And Henry had a great story. You have to go back and watch it to hear it. But, um, but you know, he was gracious and those types of, you know, those situations are just real. The idea of Breakfast of Champions in particular, guys like Henry or um, Remo, um, you know, they, they are often written about and their stories are maybe told in, in print you don't often get the chance to hear them in their own words mm. and, and see the humanity behind some of those stories. And that's what that session's about. You really get to, when someone tells you a story and you're right there in the room, it just means so much more, I think, because you're, you're sensing all the, the feelings that they like go into that story, the nonverbal communication, and, you know. And uh, so I love those sessions for that. You get, you get to know somebody that we only see from 100 feet away on the show floor or through the pages of a trade magazine. Um, and someone like Henry is a perfect example of that. Mm. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will never forget that moment or that those sessions are about creating those moments. You know? so that's what NAMM show is really about, is creating moments that you just will never forget. Uh, but you've got a lot of them so far from these other, other people you've been interviewing, because yeah. that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. you know? The other element that I think it would be fun to get your thoughts on is 
the friendships, you know, I mean, this is a really big part of, I mean, you were talking about the early days with Scott and, and coming down with your buddy and, and experiencing all those early days together. But over the years, you've also developed some pretty impressive relationships. And maybe it's um, not appropriate to single any particular ones out. Yeah. But I think Remo comes to mind. You know, here's a, a guy that we all know by name. Um, but the fact that you had a, a real close relationship with him, um, it always hit me when I saw you guys together at the show that, oh, okay, this is not just two guys hanging out with each other. This is, there's a real something special here. Well, it was definitely a, you know, sensei student role, <laughs> you know, and he, and it's funny, the last show he was at, uh, it's probably at the chairman's reception, maybe at the booth. And he said, young man, when are you going to come and see me? You owe me a visit. And I guess I hadn't been up to see the factory. I hadn't been up in a while. And uh, I said, Remo, I'm going to come see you after the show. I promise. I'll come see you after the show. And, uh, you know, after the show becomes March. (laughs) (laughs) And I finally got a, you know, found a day or two to take a trip and and went up to LA. And uh, it was probably the third week in March, maybe the last week in March. He was in the factory. We spent half a day. First, we walked through everything because I hadn't been there in a couple of years. We had lunch brought in and met with a bunch of the, um, his key people on the health rhythm side. Um, he wasn't feeling that great, but um, I just remember how gracious he was that day. Knew, still knew most of the people on the floor of his factory by name. <laughs> you know, just walking around with him, he's, you know, he's just got that personable side. Mm. Um, and then uh, he passed away, I think, about two weeks later. And mm-hmm. I find out that was his last day in the office. And he... This whatever he had developed into pneumonia, and he went to the hospital, and he never came out. So, and I just kept thinking, what if I had not made that trip that day? What if I had said, well, we'll do it in April, and I'll never forget the lesson I learned is when someone says, "Young man, when you can come and see me, go see him." <laughs> no, but I mean, in general, the um, the thought about friendships over the show over the years, especially now that you know some of these. Some of us have been going there for decades and decades. You see, this, a lot of the same people stay in the industry, yet we're all growing older together. And if you you know play your cards right, you kind of move up in the companies together. So, what used to be a bunch of us just kind of goofing around, trying not to get in trouble, we're all running companies now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a whole different. You know, yeah, you may look like you're kind of a big deal right now but I remember when you know so we all have this on each other don't go trying to get too fancy on me because I remember um, but you know that story of friendships reuniting catching up even if it's in a moment you know and there's that running joke uh, of the show floor of you know two reps get together on the show floor and oh do you hear about old Jim yeah no what happened he passed away oh you're kidding me what did he have we had Harmon for Florida, Georgia, <laughs> South Carolina. <laughs> Those are the things you just you just connect with people, and then your whole life is all about that moment when you see each other again. And so, yeah, it's a it's a you know it's a family reunion, and a trade show breaks out. And I know it's serious, and there's a tremendous amount of resources being devoted to it, and we take that very seriously to make sure it's the best ROI. But I never want to lose that part that mm. it is really a family reunion. Um, and if we lose that part, I think we lose a lot of what the industry is really all about. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Michelle Shedler, and Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.